Welcome everyone to Dabu's Fingers episode 68, Only Hope. I'm Scatty and with me as always is my buddy Matt here to record. Here we are everybody. We continue our read through of A Feast for Crows and the Dance with Dragons which we're reading in tandem. Special reading order, you guys have heard it already, developed by Game of Owns and the reading order is called A Feast with Dragons. It combines the two books together and we read through them chronologically that way. You can find that reading order on our website, davosfingers.com, or you can find it at uh, feastwithdragons.com. In this episode, we are uh, splitting things pretty evenly. We've got three chapters from A Feast for Crows. That's Brienne 8, Cersei 10, and Jamie 7. And there is some meaty stuff in these freaking Feast for Crows chapters. Then we're jumping over to Dance, where we're going to do Daenerys 7 and John 9. So it should be good. Uh, let's see here, Scad. We were talking about announcements for this week. Um... Do you want to do Song of Madness first, actually? Sure. You guys, Song of Madness. I don't know. Maybe not everybody knows what that is, but we at <laughs> I think a lot of I think a lot of people only know us for Song of Madness and don't even know we're a podcast. Uh, but <laughs> and they go away for a year. Yeah, and they come they back. Come oh, yeah. back. And that's okay. That's and that's okay. fine. Good for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Song of Madness is a March Madness style tournament. Uh, where we pit characters from Song of Ice and Fire against each other in Twitter polls. Um, And we get tons of interaction going. You know, you vote, but also you stick around for the conversations. I remember last year, and I never can get this person's Twitter handle right, um, I think uh, she, she, like, posted... Like, like her own thought process for each matchup and, like, who she was voting for and why she would vote for them and posted those yeah. in response. Um, we just, had our, our, our friends at Close the Door podcast. That was two years ago two that years, Close the Door. Yeah. yeah. The, we had a matchup of Jamie and Brienne and our friends at Close the Door went and did a whole uh, spontaneous episode trying to convince people who to vote for and stuff like that. Actually, I think, I think no, that it was, was Jamie John. Jamie John. They were trying to get Jamie to yeah. pull the upset on John, and it worked. I think he won that. It did. Yeah. Jamie did win that year. Yeah. So uh, things get crazy. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> it is a lot of fun. Uh, that actually, believe it or not, that will start. I, I've got to still do the reverse math real quick, but I think that will start the day after this cast releases to the general public. On March twelfth, mm-hmm. I think it might be the thirteenth. I gotta figure it out exactly, but it's so coming soon. Yeah, we are super excited. We've actually got uh, we've got a few little pre matchup uh, things being determined uh, by our patrons uh, on the Patreon to figure out uh, the the last four in, if you will, uh, just like the tournament has. Uh-huh. So um, having a little fun with that and finalizing the field right now, but it'll be ready by the time this releases. So pretty excited. Hold on to your hats. It's going to be another fun year. It really is. So uh, we know of people who started Twitter accounts just to participate in the Song of Madness. (laughs) So if you feel so inclined, you know, Uh, log on to the old Twitter.com. You've put it off for this long. Might as well end it and uh, set up an account and follow us at Davos Fingers and and you'll have some fun. You'll figure it out real quick. I have a reasonable amount of angst and indigestion around the fact that we made people sign up for Twitter that didn't want to. <laughs> like it makes me it makes me go to a dark place like Bran Hoder Bran uh, taking over control of Hoder. 
I can see. Uh, actually, I can't see why that would take you to a dark place. Just revel in it. <laughs> Let the hate flow through you. It does. It does. Give this in is... to your anger. Yeah, but this is dragging them down with me. Is the problem. <laughs> oh, so a song of madness. Yes, it'll be fun. Um, Scad, did you want to give an update on how your uh, Dungeons and Dragons campaign is going? <laughs> Oh, Matt put this in the notes, and uh, thank you so much for caring, Matt. You uh, let me tell my Boyd Tinsley story last <laughs> week, last episode, and I appreciated that. And I think people are interested in this. You've gotten some good comments from people about it. Yeah. Uh, bless Owl uh, on, on Twitter. He sent me like a whole D&D like, playlist to like have his background music and stuff. Um, and, Guy's uh, hardcore. We love him. Yeah, he's awesome. Uh, so yeah, it went, you know what? It went well. I'm a new DM. I'd never done it before. And my users were, or my users, Jesus, software kicking in again. <laughs> Project my, manager. Yeah, my players were, uh, some of, about half of them were new and half of them have played before. And the new ones were just like super eager and like just jumping in and like sharing all this stuff. And like, I couldn't keep control too well, but it was a lot of fun. <laughs> they had a blast. Um, yeah, I, I'm I'm super excited. It went well. There's a lot of stuff that I didn't do really well, and I'm excited to get better and and turn it into like a real skill that I can use nowhere in life. But uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. But there, and we play again next week, so I'm stoked. I gotta do some prep, but I'm mostly ready. You go, you crazy kid, you. Yeah, thanks for asking. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Keep it up. Yeah. Uh, let's see. And then we thought we haven't done this in a while. Yeah. So I thought we'd do a little round of what we're watching and listening to these days. Oh, reading, so yeah. Perfect. Reading whatever. Um, I only read one thing during podcast season. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I'm not reading anything new. Yeah. What about you? Yeah, mostly true for me on the reading side too. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to keep abreast of my sister's comics. She's got a great run of Hawkeye coming to a close here. She does. Uh, next oh, week, man. that book got mm-hmm. canceled, but kind of weirdly because it was it was doing pretty well according to her. And um, but you know, on to on to bigger and brighter things. Uh, she's got Rogan Gambit going right now, which is a really really fun book if you like if you like the X Men specifically Rogan Gambit and specifically like '90s era X Men because it's really got that feel. But uh, so trying to keep abreast of that. Uh, but other than that, yeah, I'm not I'm not reading much other than D and D manuals. Uh, on the watching side uh i am i am so close i'm so close to finishing west wing i'm on like season seven episode 20 or something like i've only got like three or four more episodes to go i think i'm very close and excited to to wrap that up because your second time through no it's my first time through uh oh i thought you'd watched it before no i'd watched episodes here and there but i I wanted Mm. to watch it all and nice. I, I really want to get it done because do you know what's releasing on March 8th? Uh, nope. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is. Uh, oh, geez. I'm blanking on the name now. Come on. Scott. I know. There's too many superheroes. Frickin There's a. too many superheroes. Uh, uh, Jessica, Jessica Jones. Jones. Yes. Yeah. Jessica Jones season okay, two. So I did see that one. Is coming mm-hmm. and the trailer looked awesome and I'm super excited for it. Uh, that comes March 8th, so I'm just trying to get West Wing out of the way so I can squeeze that baby right in there. That's what she said. Yeah. What are you up to? Uh, let's see. So I've got 
two shows that I'm watching right now, and I actually just finished one last night. I'm all caught up, and I'm really sad about that. Um, and they're fun, and they're light. So the one that I just finished is Shit's Creek. Oh, Did you watch that? No, I remember when that came out, like, I don't know, three years or so ago, and I was like, uh-huh. that looks really funny. Uh, it is fantastic. Is it I love it so much. So, uh, real quick, it's the story of a family that's very, very wealthy, um, and they lose everything. And so they have to move to this town that they once bought as a joke. And it's the only thing they have left in their name is this town. And the name of the town is Shit's Creek, spelled uh, S-C-H-I-T-T, shit. And um, it's just them trying to learn how to live in this kind of backwards town of something they're just not used to. And, oh boy, it's great. It's got Eugene Levy in it. Um, from, uh, what, what shows is he in? American, American Pie. Pie, right? He's the dad. And all the uh, a Mighty yeah. Wind and all those, all Comedic those kind of legend. funny shows. It's it's by those yeah. that same group, isn't it? That did the, I don't know, Mighty Wind and the, what is it, the dog one, Best in Show, is it? Yeah, it's actually all written, and it came, was um, uh, Eugene Levy's son, David Levy. Am I saying it? Is it Levy or Levy? I think it's Levy, dude. Levy. Just go with it. Uh, yeah, Dan Levy, his son, came up with it, and he writes it. Oh, okay. And he's he's in it as well. He plays his he plays the son of Eugene Levy. They have the father son relationship well, in the show too, and he's actually my favorite part of the show. He is. Uh, written himself very well but um is yeah it's fantastic it's so funny it's smart it's uh it's silly at times but in a good way and uh i think you guys should try it out it's funny the the episodes are only like 20 minutes long and there's three seasons so you breeze right through it it's so it's like the inverse beverly hillbillies a little bit yeah exactly you got it but um so i like Shit's creek the other show i've been watching is Queer Eye. Oh, I saw you post on Facebook about this. It's fantastic. It's so heartwarming. It's so uplifting. It's uh, So it's a reality show of five men who are gay, who all specialize in different areas. One's a stylist, the other's an interior designer, etc. And they, uh, they kind of make over these uh, straight men, for the most part, I actually did just watch an episode where they made over a gay, another gay man, but uh, it's mostly straight men, and uh, it's it's really, it's it's a show full of heart, and uh, so if you just need something uplifting and kind of fun, Queer Eye is your show. It, they do it in a way where they don't just like force, you know, a guy to get a haircut and get a new wardrobe and stuff. They kind of learn about the guy and try to like see who he really is on the inside and then try to pull that out, you know, out of him on the outside and, and kind of make him over in a way that he's being presented as his best self. And it's actually, it's actually really cool. So Matt, I hate those makeover shows, the what <laughs> to wear really... and like all the, I can't, yeah. I can't stand them. You, My wife loves them. You make it sound a little different like this one. I mean, is it a little different? I don't know. It exactly is. And it's because it's it's because they're not just making them over on the outside. Yeah. They really do take the time to learn about them and yeah. and you know, there was this last one that I just watched was uh so it was an, it was a gay man and 
one of the things that he was scared to do was come out to his family, particularly his stepmom, who was the he's kind of his closest last surviving relative that he had. And uh, so that was part of the makeover was helping him feel comfortable coming out in his own way and stuff. And boy, I watched that and I just bawled like a baby when I watched the scene. It was it's uh, super uplifting. It's an awesome show. Now, did you ever <laughs> did you watch the original? I haven't. No. Did you? No, I mean it was it was kind of uh, a, like a cultural phenomenon at the time. I mean, yeah, um, you know, LGBTQ. I mean, it it wasn't nearly as it wasn't nearly as well accepted then, and I think it was sure it, it was kind of a I don't know. People that know more about it are probably just shaking their head at me, like you don't know what you're talking about, and I don't. But well, it felt very much like a like a, a little bit of a a change in the wind that show like it it opened some people mm-hmm. it, it just made it more i don't know more more open to everybody i guess more available to everybody um that whole culture and uh, yeah i don't know I, I never i never watched it really i mean i, I saw snip, snippets here and there but again it has nothing to do with you know not being a friend to the community as it does with i hate makeover shows <laughs> i hate makeover housing shows i hate makeover dressing shows i hate biggest lose i can't stand any of that stuff i it's probably got something to do with some deep-seated issues with me not wanting to change who i am despite knowing (laughs) i need to uh but but i don't know i yeah i can't get into them give it a give it maybe watch one episode see what you think and then go from there all right i will try they do episode they do address the 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 relationship to the to the previous series, which it's not the same five guys. They're different guys, apparently. And they talk about how in that first series, years and years ago, it was more about, they said it was a goal of acceptance, accepting, you know, gay people for who they are and stuff like that. Because it was a different world, like you said, than it is today. Yeah. And he said, now now the point of this show is is to, to build bridges, to find common ground. Mm-hmm. So it's about, you know, Rather than accept, more so than acceptance, it's about building these bridges and and finding common ground and realizing that we're more alike than we are different. You know. Well, it does sound uh, sounds uplifting. Talked way more about this than I planned on. <laughs> well, I've I've got one more I wanted to just throw out there real quick. Uh, Ooh. Because uh, I spend more time watching this than anything else by far, and it is Critical Role. And uh, <laughs> I recommend it to anybody who has even a passing interest in D&D. It's professional voice actors playing Dungeons & Dragons in front of a camera. And they are super committed. They just started a new campaign eight weeks ago, and so they're eight episodes in. Um, but it's I wa- it's once a week. I watch it every week. And uh, it's a super time commitment. But uh, I love that. So give that a shot if you, uh, if you want that. You can find it on YouTube or you know whatever. Just Google Critical Role. You'll find it. I just found out out of nowhere that my little brother watches that. See, it's it's coming for you, Matt. <laughs> I have no idea. You will be assimilated. I have no idea. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, we'll yeah. see. Anyways, okay, so that's what we're watching, uh, reading, and we didn't say anything about listening to. Uh, but I don't know that I've got anything new. I'm just boning up on Hamilton because I got tickets on April 11th or something. You did. Good for you, man. Well, I'm a, I'm a season ticket holder at the old Eccles. So, uh, oh, yeah. yeah, I got them as part of that. 
So. Oh, big moment for you. I'm so excited. I always love that soundtrack and stuff. Yeah. I got tickets to Weezer. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to take my son. Uh, my son, my eight-year-old, loves Weezer. And uh, I'm going to take him this year. I, I didn't pull the trigger on Metallica tickets this morning. No? I got there, and the tickets were supposed to be one price, and then they were like $40 more, and that just like pissed me off. Uh, of course. And yeah. so I just like didn't. Have you seen them? Yeah, I've seen them twice. But Okay. And the, and I also found out Paul Rogers, who's my favorite vocalist, is coming uh, in the summer, but I'll be gone on vacation. So mm. I've never seen him and probably won't because he's getting old and he almost never comes out west. He's English. and uh, mm-hmm. But, yeah, two things I'll miss out on concert-wise. But Yeah. I think I'm going to get tickets to uh, Smashing Pumpkins. Ooh. I love them very much, and they're doing something of a reunion tour. They got three-fourths of the band back together, and they're touring. Uh, by the time they get to Utah, they will have been on tour for a couple months, which will probably give them plenty of time to be good and pissed at each other. <laughs> we might that, get some good drama or something. With that 90s angst <laughs> out. Yeah. All uh, right. Podcast? Well, yeah. Give us our uh, spoiler warning. Yeah. We're spoiled the free until the end of the podcast, guys. So we're we're going along at the pace of the chapters we've read, which we're, we're almost out. So there's very little territory mm-hmm. that we can't cover anymore, but there is still a little. Uh, so we're not going to spoil anything that we haven't read thus far. And I don't know about you, Matt, but I feel like that's getting easier and easier. Like I hardly even have to check myself anymore. Right. It really is. Um, and if you want to contact us to suggest topics future episode for future episodes, or if you just want to ask us questions or uh, shoot the breeze, reach out to us, davosfingers.com. We are davosfingers at gmail.com. Our Twitter handle, like we said, is at davosfingers. We're on Facebook, and you can go to patreon.com slash davosfingers to learn more about our Patreon program. So, without any further ado, should we get started with our dear old Brienne? Let's do it up, man. Okay, that's me, so here we go. If you could see what we could see, oh, I swear you would believe. Conviction, grace, and pride, swear the beauty resides. You don't have to hide behind the lies, oh, your fate they can't decide. Well, Brienne, you'll always be a beauty to me. So Brienne was sure that she was dreaming, but if she was dreaming, why did it hurt so much? Uh, Feverish, probably concussed, swollen and broken, Brienne finds herself not resting comfortably at Rivendale, but bound and slung across a horse, being led by an unknown party to who knows where. In and out of a fever dream, she sees Biter, Renly, Nimble Dick, Catelyn Stark, the first men she had killed, them being Shagwell, Pig, and Timion. Jamie, she finally cries out in this dream. Jamie. Uh, in a moment of lucidness between the fever dreams, Brienne learns that it was indeed Gendry that saved her in the last chapter at the inn when Biter was eating her face off. He shoved a spear through Biter's back. Uh, Gendry, who's actually present on this little soiree right now, tells her that she is going to Milady, and Jane Heddle, uh, Willow from the last chapter's big sister, says she must remain bound as she is to answer for her crimes. Hmm. 
Uh, Brienne has more fever dreams, particularly of Jamie, and sees on one of her captors the helm of the hound. No, she says, I killed you. Har, replies the hound, who's actually Lem Lemoncloak. It'll be me killing you, revealing that Brienne is set to be hanged. Brienne gasps that they broke bread with them at the inn. But Jane tells her that guest right doesn't mean what it used to since Milady came back from the wedding. Hmm. Uh, let's see. Falling into more fever dreams, Brienne eventually awakes in what appears to be a network of caves, finding herself stripped of armor and weapons, but with her wounds treated. Uh, an old man is there, who Brienne eventually recognizes as the Red Wizard, Thoros of Myr. He informs her that Beric Dondarrion's fire has gone out of this world, and that a grimmer shadow leads the Brotherhood Without Banners in his place. Uh, Thoros is kind to Brienne, bringing her what little food they can offer and explaining that although she is meant to die, her valor at the inn merited at least the comforts of treating her wounds, uh, although he kindly tells her that her face will be extensively scarred from Biter's attack. He also informs her that they have Podrick and Hyle Hunt in their custody and that Septon Maribald was set free. Uh, Brienne protests that Podrick is an innocent boy, but Thoros counters that Podrick was the squire to Tyrion Lannister himself and tells her that mercy and forgiveness are in short supply here. When she asks, well, what about justice? Thoros sadly replies that war makes monsters of even good men. Uh, at this point, Brienne is taken to a large and crowded cavern where a hooded and cloaked woman sits behind a table, toying with a bronze crown ringed with iron swords. The Silent Sister, a.k.a. Mother Merciless, a.k.a. the Hangwoman, but most of all, she is called Lady Stoneheart. There before the shrouded Stoneheart, Brienne is accused of being a Lannister crony, and the evidence is fairly damning. Not only had she been calling Jamie's name throughout their journey to the Brotherhood's lair, but she has in her possession Oathkeeper, the sword which of course has in its pommel a gold lion with ruby eyes. Oh, and there's also Brienne's letter that contains Tommen's seal. Uh, Brienne realizes that her arguments are futile at this point, but nevertheless she persisted, insisting that the sword was given to her to help fulfill the oath Jamie Lannister swore to Catelyn Stark. Brienne is meant to find Sansa and Arya, uh, who unfortunately were already gone from King's Landing by the time she arrived there. Her accusers laugh at the notion that the Kingslayer would have gone behind his sister's back in order to save the Stark girls. Oh, and let's not forget who Brienne's traveling with right now, the imp squire and one of Randall Tarley's household knight. So Podrick and Hyle are then brought out, the latter being badly beaten, and Brienne tells Lady Stoneheart that they had nothing to do with whatever treachery she thinks Brienne is a part of. Let them go, she pleads. Then Lady Stoneheart grasps her own throat and speaks in a voice so broken, raspy, and tortured that Brienne can't even make out her words. One of the men translates that she asked the name of Brienne's blade. Brienne replies and answers saying that it is Oathkeeper, but Lady Stoneheart hisses and names it Oathbreaker and false friend 
just like Brienne herself. Brienne asks, to whom have I been false? To her, the man said who's translating. Can it be that my lady has forgotten that you once swore her your service? And then I'm quoting the chapter. There was only one woman that the maid of Tarth had ever sworn to serve. That cannot be, she said. She's dead. It's then that Lady Stoneheart uncovers herself, revealing dry, brittle hair, white as bone. Her brow was mottled green and gray, spotted with the brown blooms of decay. The flesh of her face clung in ragged strips from her eyes down to her jaw, and some of the rips were crusted with dried blood. Others gaped open to reveal the skull beneath. Lady Catelyn. The realization bring, brings tears to her eyes. They said you were dead, Brienne exclaims. She is, says Thoros, explaining that the Brotherhood found Catelyn's body by the river three days after the Red Wedding. Thoros refused to give her the kiss of life as he'd done so many times with Beric. But Beric himself was willing, pressing his lips to hers and allowing the flame of life that was sustaining him to pass to her. And she rose, Thoros proclaims. May the Lord of Light protect us. She rose. Shocked, Brienne pleads again that she would never betray Catelyn, that she was trying to find Sansa and Arya. Words are wind, Lady Stoneheart says through her interpreter, and he, then she says that Brienne must prove her faithfulness. All she would ask of Brienne is to kill Jamie Lannister. <laughs> well, we all know you couldn't have asked Brienne to do much worse. Uh, despite Brienne's claims that Jamie is not the man he was, Stoneheart remains firm. Kill Jamie, she says, or be hanged along with Podrick and Hyle. I will not make that choice, Brienne answers. So be it, Jedi, Catelyn says, ordering for them to be executed, and they are taken out of the caves, and there, awash in pale dawn light, Brienne and her associates are strung up to trees. I'm going to read this last part. Brienne felt the hemp constricting, digging into her skin, jerking her chin upward. Ser Hyle was cursing them eloquently, but not the boy. Podrick never lifted his eyes, not even when his feet were jerked up off the ground. If this is another dream, it is time for me to awaken, Brienne thinks. If this is real, it is time for me to die. All she could see was Podrick, the noose around his thin, thin neck, his legs twitching. Her mouth opened. Pod was kicking, choking, dying. Brienne sucked the air in desperately, even as the rope was strangling her. Nothing had ever hurt so much. And she screamed a word. And end of chapter. Wow, man. End of chapter. That was, a, re that was a really good summary, Matt. It you was long, and I was sad about that, but there's just so much to cover in this one, man. You did great. I, I, The first half of this chapter, I was thanking you for taking it, because I hate these dream chapters where <laughs> dreams mix with reality, because they're just so awkward to summarize, mm -hmm. like what happens versus what she's thinking, you know, like they don't yeah. go together, but you did a really good job with it. Thank you. Uh, man. You also, the other thing about that summary that you did well, because... Some of my notes here for this chapter are about, come on, like, try harder to convince them. Like, none of this is true. Like, the truth will out. You gotta, like, fight harder. Like, you gotta try harder. Mm -hmm. But the way you lay out the evidence, it's like, yeah, 
It's it's all stacked against her. Every single right. piece here just stacks up to you're working for the Lannisters. And any other explanation feels like a coincidence. Yeah, if only we could if only Catelyn could see that Brienne was continuing her cre- her quest even in the right after she'd been captured, she was asking, "Are you Sansa Stark?" she asks Jane Heddle. That's and, one uh, of the notes I have. Like right, right. up to that moment. <laughs> it is like they they out it's I think it was Lem, I can't remember. I think it was Lem who who says, "Yeah, you you were screaming Jamie's name the whole yeah. time like mm-hmm. You know, but he doesn't mention anything about the fact that she's asking about Sansa the whole time also. Yeah, because right? they're not they're not interested in proving her innocent. Right. No, which leads to another point I have, but I don't want to make it yet. Hmm. Uh, but I just up now. What's that? I said shutting up now. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, I don't. I, I, I just I'll come back to it. I mean, okay. I think. It just feels like, I don't know, it may, maybe if she had said, this was ice, this was your sword, I took it because of that, or, mm-hmm. um, you know, it it was given to Jamie. he gave it away, that's evidence of how he's changed, he gave it away, even though Tywin gave it to him, mm-hmm. you know, like, there are, there are, maybe it wouldn't have all added up to, to them giving her the benefit of the doubt, but there are reasons behind every single one of these things, right? right? Mm-hmm. And... <laughs> and she doesn't give any of them, right? And I know it's uh, they, they might not have listened, but it's just frustrating to read because you're like, you don't just let them beat you down like this. There are reasons for all of it. Yep, yep. And, she doesn't <laughs> give and them. then you add on to the fact that Brienne is very badly injured, uh, most oh, certainly yeah. has a concussion, and then of course she just she has very few social skills, and I don't yes. think she thinks very quickly on her feet. When she's in any type of social situation, especially yeah. where her back's up against the wall, um, yeah, yeah, I wrote you down add she... all of that up, and it's yeah, it's, uh, it's frustrating. It, like you get said. a hanging, that's what you get. Yeah. I wrote down D and D charisma check because yeah, she just fails it. She can't. She's she's not strong enough and charismatic enough to pull this off. Right. Jamie would have had a better chance surviving this encounter than her, mm-hmm. right? Just because he's charismatic and could talk mm-hmm. his way through things and. You're you know, absolutely like, right. Yeah, mm-hmm. do something, yeah. and it's one of Brienne's weaknesses, right? For as much as we love her, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, go ahead. Well, I you know the big part of this chapter, and I tried to focus on it during the summary, is Catelyn Stark is freaking back, man. Sort of. Yeah. Ish. Ish. I mean. She's definitely not herself. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like I feel like if if she ha- even with all the evidence stacked against Brienne, if Cat were herself, I feel like she wouldn't be able to do this. She knows she saw that when they were having breakfast that time in River Run or whatever, she saw underneath the covers, if that's mm-hmm. the term. She knows she knows what Brienne is. I think she could see and would know that she's not capable of something like this. And I, it, it feels like Kat is literally just so incensed and so bound for revenge that she's not even capable of reason. That's what it feels like to me. Certainly. Yeah, it, she's always been a bit vengeful, right? 
Yeah. You know, uh, in in a way, you know, her treatment of Jon Snow and, and some of the other moments that we see, well, she has a propensity to stubbornness and... Grabbing Tyrion and fleeing to the Vale. I mean... <laughs> there you go. Some people say kicked off a lot of this stuff. I mean... Yeah. yeah. And this just, it's like that part of her personality has just been completely amplified. Yeah. Um, by whatever happened. Uh, interesting... In the sense that, to my knowledge, we really, well, I guess we've seen the whites and stuff like this, but this is some kind of horror zombie stuff that we really haven't seen from George yet in this series, right? Yeah. Um, it's very interesting. And then, you know, the idea of Beric Dondarrion doing it, he just, you know, out, it doesn't say why he did it, just perhaps out of love for, for the Starks. You know, he was fiercely loyal to Eddard. Um, when he was commanded to go clear the clear river or the riverlands, uh, and so he kisses this body that had been dead for three days, which is kind of gross by itself, and somehow the flame of life passes from him to her. That's a very interesting concept that we really haven't explored yet. No, we haven't, and I don't I don't know what we can say about it too much. I'll go back to to Barrack real quick. I feel like, and I won't have all the details, but I feel like the last time. We got in his head, it was maybe Arya talking to him. Somebody was talking to him, and he just sounded tired. Mm-hmm. And uh, he even like admitted that he doesn't come back all the way, or doesn't come back the same. Um, but it, I got you get the sense from that conversation, you know, a while ago now, that he's he's done, he's used up, he's he's a bit spent, and yeah, I'll read this uh, this quote. I it's from Germ, and I. I was going to save it for Davos after dark, but it really doesn't give anything away. And I, it's pertinent to the conversation we're having right now. Uh, Gurm was talking about how he didn't like in Lord of the Rings, how Gandalf came back from the dead. Um, he just didn't like it. And and he says, this is a quote from Gurm. He says, my characters who come back from death are worse for wear. He's comparing that to how Gandalf came back better, you know, almost godlike. Uh, he says in some ways, he says, in some ways, they're not even the same characters anymore. The body may be moving, but some aspect of the spirit is changed and transformed, and they've lost something. Well, it's interesting that he's quibbling with the way Gandalf came back, unless he's referring to the movies, which kind of skirted this maybe a little bit. Mm-hmm. But Gandalf did come back very different. Uh, sure. He, he, and he is, in fact, a god, if you want to use i yes. mean the, the, the whole i'm gonna screw up because i'm by no right? means a scholar of the tolkien universe but yep. you know i know a little and he is a layer of of one of their many layers of gods yep he's like a, a servant to the gods so i mean like he is kind of godlike in that sense mm-hmm. um but uh, he he definitely did lose some things um so it's it's interesting because it sounds like he's describing exactly what happened to gandalf with what he's doing <laughs> Yeah, I think the the difference being that this is kind of a degenerative process. Yes, yeah, for sure. Whereas Gandalf got stronger, back. right? Right, yeah. Yeah. He also says Beric was sent on a mission to do something, and it's like that's what he was clinging to. He's forgetting other things. He's forgetting who he is or where he lived. He's forgotten the woman he was once supposed to marry. Bits of his humanity are lost every time he comes back from death, but he remembers that mission. Um, his flesh is falling away from him, but this one thing, this purpose that he had is part of what's animating him and bringing him back from death. 
Uh, And he says, I think you see echoes of that with some of the other characters who have come back from death. So it's like they have a singular purpose and that's part of what is keeping them alive. Well, and that's, that's interesting because, um, again, some of these notes I had for dad, but I don't don't know that they spoil anything. They were just kind of a a deeper discussion maybe, but Mm -hmm. you get the sense that these, uh, these men, these, the brotherhood without banners is, they've lost their sense of purpose a little bit. Yeah, Thoros and, kind of intimates that a little bit. And if if Beric, if if indeed what what George has said in his quote is true, and that's how it works, maybe Beric has lost his sense that to keep him going, he doesn't mm-hmm. have that direction anymore because the goal has become muddled, and therefore his you know his ability to cling to life is lessened, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, perhaps. Hmm. What else you got? Um. Well, yeah, I guess it's just in that theme. You know, the these guys, they sound like broken men. Mm-hmm. They, sound, they sound like the men they were trying to keep others from becoming, right? Absolutely, yes, yep. And, uh, you know, they used to stand for something, they used to have a goal. They don't, I, it doesn't even seem like they follow that anymore. Um, and, and this one description of Thoros maybe is a metaphor for the whole thing. An old gray man in gray rags. Mm-hmm. He was youngish when this started, right? And, and now he's an old gray man in gray rags. Yeah. He was, he was a drinking champion. The picture of vitality springing forth into battle with a flaming, flaming sword. Flaming sword, yeah. He was, you know a man of action in a way, you know, a drunkard for sure, but, but still a man of, of action and passion. And now he's this old gray man in gray rags. This life is, it's hard and it's weight on them. And they've become, I think their own version of broken men. And, and by getting this weird undead leader that has a completely different purpose than what they set out with, I think I feel like they're just floundering. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, uh, well said. I like that you you circled it back to the broken men. Um, it really shows that you know leadership and culture is a trickle down type thing, right? You know, once Stoneheart takes over, that trickles down to the rest of them, and and the dis- the way you described Thoros then is not all that different from Lady Stoneheart's description. You recognize that? Yeah. Gray and brittle hair and things like that. Isn't that interesting? How, it is. How that yeah. trickles down that way. Hmm. It is. And, and um, you know, compare Thoros to the only other priests of the Lord of Light we have. Mm-hmm. We have a few, uh, you know. We have Mel, who's the you know the one we know best. Yeah. We have uh, Makoro, mm-hmm. and we have you know the the ones we very saw very briefly in. Uh, um, Volantis. What uh, in what was it? Volantis. Volantis, yes. Like in Arpentos. Uh-huh. Volantis. Um. They're 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 figures of again, like I said, figures of vitality. Mm-hmm figures of fire, 
pillars of strength they almost seem, right? Makoro, mm-hmm. you get the feeling like he's just this towering, strong individual, right? With power. Yeah. Um, and this man is an old gray man in gray rags. It's 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 either that he's departed the mission that he had, and so he that vitality has left him, or you know, keeping it going for so long has just drained him, right? Because he's maybe had to fight it harder than the rest of these guys continuously with less support. I don't know. It's an interesting question, and you wonder if maybe all the times. He brought Barrick back if that had a paid a physical toll on him. Right. You right. Know? Yeah. So. You get you know, how many lives does Mario get and eventually you run out. Mm-hmm. You gotta freaking start over at level one. Ugh. <laughs> yeah. I hate that on the original Mario Brothers. You get like three lives, man, and that's yeah. it. Yeah. And Did... there's no checkpoint. Somebody recently like broke the all-time record for fastest completion of mario Mm -hmm. it was actually his own record and he spent i think it was something like i'll probably get it wrong but i think it was something like he spent nine months trying (laughs) and then he ended up breaking it by like seven tenths of a second or something no way (laughs) yeah in other words you're not getting much faster (laughs) yeah and and also you know here I am talking about these books, but so who am I to judge? But like, what are you doing with your time? <laughs> You're playing a lot of Mario, man. <laughs> Seven tenths of a second? <sighs> anyway. Yeah, I feel ya. Uh, let's see. Unless we want to talk fever dreams, I don't know that I got a ton more. But uh and i don't know that i really want to talk fever dreams to be honest with you yeah i don't don't love the fever dream stuff i don't have much about it um i mean it does circle just back to jamie and the important role that jamie plays in her life as one is the savior you know she dreamt of being in the bear pit with biting biter coming after her and all the dead people that she knew watching her and all she could think of was Jamie rescuing her. Um, there's that one passage with the Jamie shippers probably love where uh, she she sees she's back at Tarth and, you know, Red Ronit Connington is there as her betrothed. And then he transforms into Jamie, you know, during the dream. And that's uh, so. Is that the one where she had pimples in the no- folds of her nose? Yes. Those are the worst, Matt. Been there, buddy. Been yeah. there. And she bites her tongue off. That I've never done. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I guess outside of the fever dreams, the only thing I'd say is just, uh, you know, these these Lannisters, even Tywin, you know, beyond the grave, just kind of the impact that he has is on Brienne, unfortunately. He's fucking her over from the grave. Like the sword, right, mm-hmm. that he's been very careful to make very Lannister uh Mm -hmm. just totally screws her over Jamie's uh you know send send uh send him by regards right that he tells Roose Bolton which Kat hears at the wedding and now has ringing in her brain uh and associates with Brienne nice reach around yeah thanks I give a good reach around uh yeah you do and you know this whole Oathkeeper thing, just even the name 
right, mm-hmm. that Jamie is given, it's just like a stab to <laughs> to Kat's non-existent Yeah, it heart. almost comes off as sarcastic. Right. right? It's, you're right. It's ironic. And so, yeah, they just these Lannisters, like, they fucked her without even trying. Right? Yeah, they <laughs> really did. That's pretty, uh, pretty, pretty funny. Or tragic, or whatever you want to call it. So. But I think that's all I had. Hopefully we'll find out what the word was that Brienne yelled. Yeah, uh, there's theories about that. I don't know if it's a spoiler or not to say it, but um, maybe we just hold on to that. Yeah, probably better. All right, should we jump over to Cersei then? We do, but first we have a question from one of our patrons. You do, thank you. You always remember those and I forget them. I love them. They're just, you know, a little I bit of a little side diversion. I just you know? always forget them. Uh, this is a good one. <laughs> Uh, from Red Ramira Ravenhorn of Skagos. Thank you for your support, Red Ramira. She asked, what do your spouses think about you guys being podcasters? Better yet, what do your in-laws think? <laughs> Scad? Uh, my wife, I think I've said some, some version of this before. My wife is very supportive of me doing it. She thinks I get a lot out of it and enjoy it a lot, and she's right. Uh, I think she could, you know she's never listened to an episode i think she could care less about the content mm-hmm. um but she i think she likes that i do it she thinks it's good for me um my in-laws it's probably a similar answer they don't understand it for sure they've bought me gifts and things related to a song of ice and fire for like christmases and stuff mm-hmm. um so you know they're i think they like that i'm into it um you know i think they'd rather i spent the time on a treadmill or something but uh yeah you know they're supportive enough they always find what's wrong with us don't they (laughs) um and a lot of the time they're right but uh my my wife similar to yours she she could really i mean she's sweet about it but she could care less what we're talking about right uh but she's very supportive and i really appreciate her for that um, just today, actually, she was asking me, so what's your episode going to be on tonight? And I said, well, we're just still reading those books that we've always been reading. And she's like, the Game of Thrones books, right? I was like, yeah, the Game of Thrones books. She's like, so dragons and swords and stuff? Yeah, dragons and swords. <laughs> like, we've done it for three years, and that's what <laughs> she knows about it. Uh, but that's okay. And she's like, but you're almost done. What are you going to do? And so soon I found myself just this afternoon explaining to her um, – like the other books that are in the series, like the uh, Night of the Seven Kingdoms and stuff, and how we yeah. might look at those and everything. It was kind of surreal for a minute there. Yeah. But uh, she really she really just is glad that I like it. Um, my in-laws could also care less. Well, my whole family could care less. So Yeah. I don't think any member of my family has ever listened to an episode. And in case anyone thinks we're being coy, because you you had an implied question there uh, in the middle. In case anyone thinks we're being coy about what we're doing next for some, like, surprise reason, Mm. we're not. We really don't know. (laughs) Matt and I have not talked about it in depth. We've, like, you know, mentioned a few things, but we're not being coy. We're just, 
lazy is not the right word. Busy? And we, I, I don't know. Like, we just haven't really talked about it. So We really haven't. You know, That conversation will come up at some point. It will. That's how it always is with us. Uh, I think we're both on the same page that we want to do something. Yeah. Um, but uh, we want to have fun doing it. So. Yep. We'll get there. Okay. Should we go to Cersei? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, that is also Everyone's favorite me. crazy person. Let's do it. Our favorite crazy. And we get a lot of crazy in this one. Alluring eyes can get the guys with promises, lies, then cast aside. Can't she be the man she thinks her family needs? One brother she hates, with the other she mates. Those debts can she repay? Cersei Lannister. Cersei is livid at the charges of fornication, adultery, and high treason levied against her daughter-in-law, Marjorie, by the High Septon. Narrator voice, she wasn't really livid, she was just pretending. Uh, She's putting on quite the show for the small council, the lords and ladies gathered in the throne room, and for Septima Well, the High Septon's rep, who has come to inform the crown of the charges against Marjorie. These charges were made after one of the Queen's own knights, Osney Kettleblack, confessed to having an affair with Marjorie. This couldn't be going any better for Cersei, even as she presses Septima Well for any shred of evidence besides Osney's word to support the charges. The Septa says that Marjorie has been examined, aka violated, and found to not be a virgin. Cersei commands that Pycelle be allowed to examine her as well, just to prove it. But Pycelle, looking rather sick, says there is no need, as he has been bringing Marjorie moon tea at her command. Again, a great day for Cersei, as she essentially says, Suck it! to Maggie the Frog's prophecy of a younger and hotter queen taking her place. But Cersei's work isn't finished. Fearing potential reprisals from both House Tyrell as well as the small folk that love Marjorie, Arain Waters suggests that he launch the rest of their new dromans, their new ships, just in case Lord Tyrell tries to reinvade the city. Cersei agrees and declares that she, for her part, will bravely go to the High Septon herself to plead for Marjorie. Orton Merriweather, who's the newly appointed Hand of the King and husband of Taina, points out that the High Septon may want to try Marjorie himself, as it was done of old. And Cersei thinks to herself, yeah, I sure hope so. Cersei then goes to King Tommen and has him unknowingly sign warrants for the two handfuls of Marjorie's accused lovers. I say that in quotation marks. Uh, And then Cersei sends Osfried Kettleblack to arrest all those people. Taina Merriweather is, of course, with Cersei every step of the way and asks what will happen if Marjorie demands her innocence be determined by trial of combat. And Cersei gleefully reminds Taina that as a queen, Marjorie must choose her champion from among the Kingsguard. And with Loras wounded, Osmond being the accused, accused's brother, accuser's brother, and Ares, Balon, and Jaime outside of the kingdom, that leaves only Boris Blunt or Marin Trant to defend her. The pick of the litter of the Kingsguard, says I. Not. Uh, arriving at the Great Sept, Cersei first goes to Marjorie's cell, finding Marjorie cold and cranky. Uh, due to her treatment at the hands of the Septas, who wake her every hour to ask for her confession, 
which Marjorie has not given. She is shocked to find that her cousins have been accused as well, and even more shocked to hear that there will be a trial. Cersei reminds her that she has the right to call for a trial by combat. And Marjorie realizes as well, as uh, Cersei pointed out to Tana, that her only options are blunt and trant. Marjorie then speaks for many of us when she calls Cersei a vile, scheming, evil bitch who wants her son all to herself and had planned it this way. How very perceptive of you, Marjorie. Uh, Cersei, of course, feigns innocence and pitiful understanding at Marjorie's anger, but uh, Marjorie kicks her mother-in-law out. Cersei feigns dignity and even forgiveness and tells Marjorie she should pray for mercy and wisdom. And then Cersei leaves. She goes to see the High Septon and suggests that perhaps he should conduct the trial. The High Septon agrees, and Cersei is loving how a plan comes together. Uh, wanting to get out while she's still ahead, Cersei patters out a, well, we'll make this work, goodbye, and takes her leave. Kind of as an aside saying she'll take Osni with her to be questioned by the council. You know, I'll just take my Osni and get out of your hair. But to her surprise, the High Septon refuses. No, you can't take Osni. The High Septon then takes her to see Osni, and Cersei is stunned to see that he has been, um, what's the word, the phrase for it? Put to the question? He's been tortured. She protests, they cannot do this. And the High Septon remarks that strangely, Osni's confession seemed to change the longer they whipped him. And now, he says, he never touched Marjorie's Tyrell. Cersei, of course, says that they've just driven him mad. So Serosny, says the High Septon, did you have carnal knowledge of the queen? Aye, says the broken Osney, repeating that he did have carnal knowledge of a queen, the queen that's in the room with them. He also confesses to killing the previous High Septon, per Cersei's command, by suffocating him with a pillow while he slept. Uh, you can imagine what Cersei did. She turns and she tries to run away. Uh, she doesn't make it very far. And despite her protestation, she is thrown into a cell, stripped down and left alone. Uh, she throws the glorious tantrum where she throws and shatters the one water jug she's left with. She breaks her chamber pot and she rips up the clothing that she was left to dress in. A big mistake as the night only gets colder. Similar to what Marjorie described, a septa comes every hour on the hour during the night for her confession, but no one comes to rescue her. A whole day passes in like fashion, and finally, Kyburn comes to see her. She begs him to take her home, but he tells her that she is to be tried before a holy court of seven for murder, treason, and fornication. Uh, we're almost done here. He gives her the lowdown on what's happened over the last 24 hours. Tommen's okay. He has no idea what's going on with her. Orton Merriweather and Taina have fled the city, as has Arane Waters, who took the crown's new ships and sailed off to who knows where. Right now, the government is in the hands of Harris Swift and Grand Maester Pycelle, who have apparently already reached out to the likes of Kevin Lannister to see if he wouldn't mind coming back to right this ship. Uh, Marjorie is still to be tried, and her father Mace has abandoned his siege at Storm's End, Storm's End and is marching back to the capital with his armies. Kyburn urges Cersei to choose 
her champion to prove her innocence in battle, someone who only Kyburn seems to know about and who he claims no man in the Seven Kingdoms can defeat. Uh, Cersei laughs at his ignorance, reminding him that the same rules apply to herself as Marjorie, that as the queen, she can only be defended by a member of the Kingsguard. She then instructs Kyburn to send a message to Jaime and tell him uh, she loves him and begs him to come save her. She said, uh, so Kyburn says, as you command, um, and Jeremy, Jamie said, or excuse me, Cersei says, he will come. I know he will. He must. Jamie is my only hope. Help me, Obi-Wan Kajamie. Uh, my queen, said Kyburn, have you forgotten? Sir Jamie has no sword hand. If he should champion you and lose, we will leave this world together as we once came into it, she thinks. He will not lose. Not Jamie. Not with my life at stake. And so ends another crazy Jay, uh, Cersei chapter, right, Scatty? Yeah. Yep. One one which starts with her her kind of machinations and insanity uh, continued, and one that uh-huh. ends with a snap back to reality. Ooh, there goes uh, gravity. Yeah. yeah. Complete 180, right? Where she's got to like quickly pull it all together and be like, oh shit, okay. Uh-huh. This is what's really happening now. And it's... and she and she quickly falls back on the one thing she has always believed she could believe in and trust. Her mm-hmm. brother. See how that goes for her. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. We'll see how it pays off. Hey! Nice one. Uh... Yeah, it's almost like her going to the um, Great Sept was kind of almost a victory lap in a way. Oh, yeah. And, yep. Uh, yeah, it wasn't. She took it too far. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is, it's it's Cersei's high point, and she's taking, she's taking a moment to revel in it, mm-hmm. lording over her victories. You know, I feel like, I feel like Tyrion enjoyed playing the game in uh clash of kings Mm -hmm. he just enjoyed playing the game and manipulating and getting you know doing the manipulation i think cersei enjoys the aftermath and so she Hmm. can't she can't help but take this victory lap like you called it which is a perfect description and uh yeah bitter in the ass didn't it boy did it um well let's see here uh (sighs) Do you think, what do you think about Marjorie? <laughs> uh, well, uh, sh- she finally showed a chink in her armor, and I, I was thought I was reminded of uh, Yoda to Luke. Remember your training. Save you with Cad. <laughs> because, she, you know, clearly she's. We've talked about this a bunch of times on this podcast. She's been coached to behave a very specific way, to never be left alone with a man. You know, all of these things, and she's done it, like, dotted the I's, crossed the T's to the, to letter. the letter. She's done yeah. what what she's been coached to do, and she just cracks here, right? Yeah. Hardcore. And, uh, you know, I, I actually don't think it, it's going to matter, given what happened to Cersei at the end of the chapter, right? But, um, you know, if she does, who knows what's going to happen, right? But if she does, if they both survive the trial, and there are still two queens hanging around somehow... They're 
definitively enemies now, even though they were, you know, enemies in disguise before. Now it's like, bitch, the gloves are off, right? Yeah, it's like, how do you even come back from this? Which, of course, Cersei's not planning for. She hadn't planned for right. to come back from this. Right. Um, yeah. Um, but beyond that, uh, I don't know if I actually answered your question of what do I th- what, do, what do you think of Marjorie is what I think you asked me. Mm. Um, so I'll ask it to you. What do you think of Marjorie? Uh, not much else. I... <sighs> I mean, it's clear that the, uh, what am I trying to say here? I don't think it matters <laughs> what Cersei and Marjorie think at this point, uh, because the High Septon is in charge, right? Running the show. Yeah. He is. And what's crazy about it is, you know, Cersei says at some point, um, he's just a priest. He cannot do this. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he can. And you know why he can do this? Because of you. Yeah. Dear one, because you gave him the ability to do all this. Yeah. Uh, through empowering the military of the faith and also through murdering the previous Septon. Yeah. Both. Yeah. And it, it, it rings back to what Peter said, uh, what Peter said in the last chapter about how badly Cersei was fucking everything up mm-hmm. and that, uh, you know, he wasn't going to have the time he thought he was going to have to right. make some moves. Could you and, please slow down? Yeah. Slow down this, the crazy. This I disaster. need some time to work here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like chaos, but a little bit controlled chaos. This is just Tasmanian devil levels of uh, of chaos ripping through King's Landing right now. But so I've got I've got one one more little thing on Marjorie. Okay, it's a Professor Scad. Okay, and it, it might get a little uncomfortable, Matt. Right, are we going to do the Maidenhead thing? We are. Okay, are you it. are you all right with that? We need to. Okay, so... It's a big part of the chapter. It's a big part of the chapter, and it's a big part of the whole reason this mm-hmm. charade works that Cersei's doing is because she's got multiple people claiming that this that, that Marjorie's maidenhead is broken. Mm-hmm. And, and I started asking, like, will riding do this? Mm-hmm. You know, did Marjorie really sleep with somebody? Maybe. I don't... I, yeah. I tend to think maybe she didn't. Mm-hmm. Um... But it's a bold it's a bold guess from Circe, right? Oh yeah, that it's broken. And and then I started like, can it can that really happen? So I actually like looked looked into it a little bit, and it yeah. was weird searching for these things at work. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but when I, I did, did it, the same for, thing. <laughs> I did it for you guys. Yep. Uh, I'm glad you did, and maybe you can counter or support what I found. So, like a million things can break can break the hymen. Exercise, simply stretching, other types of sexual exploration, including masturbation, everyone's favorite. Even, you know, modern times, even putting in a tampon can stretch it, right? The other thing was that, according to youngwomenshealth.org, which which is, I, I did look a little bit, it looks like a reasonable website, it's part of like a, a Boston hospital, it, yeah. it looked legit. Okay. Um, the hymen isn't actually broken, it just changes and stretches as girls grow. So it doesn't really break, though it can tear in, you know, like, real big accidents and stuff. But mm-hmm. but basically, A, there's a million things that could cause a hymen not to be intact, and maybe they don't know that based on the medicine they have in Westeros, and so we're wasting everyone's time with this conversation. But 
There's a million things that could have done that, and so it doesn't prove anything. Yep. And, you know, B, like, it doesn't really break. So I don't, I don't, kind of wish I were a doctor. Uh, I don't know, I don't know the, the difference of what one looks like if it's more stretched or less, right? And how they, it doesn't seem like it's a binary thing. It doesn't seem like it's, like, broken or not. It seems like it's, like, different states of change hmm. is based on okay. what I read. Maybe I'm wrong about that. I'd love to be corrected. What did you no, find? I'm sure that you will. Uh, not much else. <clears throat> um, and what's interesting is it seems like what Cersei's banking on is the fact that, you know, the scandalousness, yeah. if that's even a word, of it all will override any sense of reason like you're talking about of investigating further. Well, let's see, you know, what happened. Let's look at her lifestyle and da 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 da, da and see if there's other things that could go into this. Sure, nope. it's absolutely a fair point. Uh, she's not relying just on this. It's mm-hmm. one of the pieces of evidence along with all of these confessions and, you know, the moon tea thing and all sorts of other things, right? So right. it's not the only thing she's got going. It just... It feels it feels like that was the straw that broke the back for people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and it seems like they'd find that all the time. Mm-hmm. But anyway, yep, yep. Uh, Cersei says, "I do hope the little queen and her cousins enjoyed those rides of theirs." Right. Maybe some dual meaning there. But, um, so I unfortunately had some thoughts about Cersei, like, like. Like questioning. I've been so hard (laughs) on her as a mom, and I think she's given me plenty of ammunition to be hard on that. Uh, But I did think it was rather tender. Um, You know, she's she is uh, exulting that the Maggie prophecy is not gonna not gonna occur right at the beginning of this chapter because she brought Marjorie down. She won, and she was sure that Marjorie was that was the younger, more beautiful queen that was going to come, you know, it was going to take Cersei's place, right? And so Cersei, of course, concludes, well, if Maggie the Frog was wrong about Marjorie, she's also wrong about my kids dying. And she goes to see Tom, and she's actually crying over it. And uh, Tommen asks, why are you crying? And Cersei doesn't even say this. She just thinks. It's in her head. She says, because you're safe, because no harm will ever come to you. And uh, I thought that was rather tender of Cersei. She does, you know, she does love her kids. Um, And I think it's a big weight off her shoulders for at least a little bit as she thinks that the prophecy won't come to pass, Uh, you know, on a number of levels, not just about her kids. But I think I came to realize that I think it's not just about power for Cersei. All this stuff where she's been conniving and, and, doing all these machinations and Tasmania deviling it through everywhere. It's interesting to see how much Maggie's prophecy has influenced Cersei to do what she's doing. She's trying to disprove the prophecy on many levels. Um, And I think that comes back to, she just wants to be able to sleep at night without having to constantly look over her shoulder, you know, Uh, thinking that someone's coming after her, coming after her kids. And, I don't know, it's, I still don't like Cersei very much, but it's kind of nice that she has those few moments to uh, to be able to relax before she takes her victory lap and crap hits the fan, thinking that everyone's safe and she's out of harm's way as far as the prophecy goes. 
right? If that makes any sense. It does. It does. And you've, uh, you know, you've convinced me to go maybe a little bit easier on her. You know, Prophecy's a bitch in this series. Um, It's gotten to the point where it's so, so deep in her head, you know, that that she can't do anything but react to it. Mm-hmm. It's become such a huge part of who she is that she has to act on it. And yep. you see the same thing with Danny later later in this uh, episode here, um, where prophecy has a kind of uh, less of an impact than than for Cersei, but it just it just injects itself into everything that she does. Mm-hmm. And for certain, in Cersei's case, it does. And are the kids one of the results of that? Yeah, they are. I, I, it's one of them. I, I still feel like it's a selfish thing more than about her kids, but it is certainly one of them. Well, she's certainly given us, like I said, she's given us plenty of reason to believe that and to support yeah. what you're saying. Um, but we also did get this moment of. Yep. Kind of just being a mom for a second. Yep. And, you know, it doesn't erase how poorly she's treated Tommen and how she kind of almost emotionally abuses him. I'd go to that level uh, on many in many instances. But uh, there is a bit of love there, too. So. Indeed. Um, I think I'm about spent on this chapter. Yeah, I have some other notes, but they're not they're not super great. Mm-hmm. Um you know, the Septon is uh he's proving cagey. Um this whole this whole thing I, I, I started thinking like did did Osfrid is it Osfrid? Which one? The one that's tied up. Uh huh. Minion Osney. did Osney. Oh Osney's the one Osney is the one that's tied up, right. Did Osney confess? I, I don't think so. But did Osney confess while she was with Marjorie, changing the game, or did the Septon let Cersei go visit Marjorie, knowing that she was going to come back and talk to him, and that he could then obtain her? Or had Osney already confessed before Cersei even showed up? Hmm, that's an interesting question. I'd always uh, just assumed that he had confessed before Cersei even showed up. And High Septon was just waiting. I think I agree with that too. That's an interesting point that I hadn't considered. But he 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 plays it, and it doesn't really matter that much, other than just mm-hmm. the the way that he plays it. It maybe speaks to how good a player he is. Oh, uh, that sure. he bluffed the first time they talked, uh-huh. uh, and was just casual about it. Yeah, yeah, you can go see her if that's what you want to do. That's fine. Right is kind of how he played that when she asked if she could go see Marjorie. Mm-hmm. He's like, "Yeah, if, if that's if that's what you want to do, go go ahead. You can do what you want." Yeah. Um, and then he, she comes back to visit him again, and you get that moment, and you you hit it well in your uh, in your summary where they're do, they're doing this awesome game of of improv role play, um, which actors call yes and all the time right where it's Hmm. whatever they say during improv you always agree yes and this happened too yes and yes yes you don't ever negate somebody because then they gotta like change their whole thought process and what has to come next you Hmm. always try to agree and push the story forward right interesting and Mm -hmm. and 
he's doing that. They're playing this off of each other. Great. You're going to do the trial? Great. You can do the trial. And Kingsguard, yes, 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 yes. And then all of a sudden, the game is over. She's like, okay, I'll, I'll take uh, Osney with me. No. Nope. <laughs> and you Record can just... Scratch. Yeah, you can just hear the gears in her brain <laughs> come to a stop and, like, lurch, right? And it's just brilliant play from him, right? Uh-huh. It's uh, it's awesome. It really yeah. is. It's a great moment. And then it says she just turns and runs away. <laughs> it's like it's like that Panic. scene in um, Princess Bride where Inigo Montoya meets the six-fingered man and is face-to-face with him. He, just <laughs> he said everything he he he, he had he practiced this you know hundreds of thousands of times and he mm-hmm. says hello my name is Inigo Montoya you killed my father prepare to die and the six-fingered man in a great moment turns and just books it yes just <laughs> runs yeah yep pretty brilliant yeah. uh let's see anything else nope just uh seriously he's running out of friends uh the two people in charge of the city are now people oh, that boy. she recently demoted <laughs> and intimidated to near death. Um, you know, I don't know how loyal they're yeah. going to be. Bringing and want to bring back someone who Cersei did not leave on good terms with, her Uncle Kevin. So. Yes, right, right. Uh, so I'll just bring this up here as we finish that we ran a little, a fun little poll as we do, uh, on Twitter and Facebook and Patreon, where we said, who would you pick if you had to pick out of Marin Trant and Boris Blunt, who would you pick to be your champion? And, uh, across the board, Patreon, Facebook, and here and Twitter, uh, Marin Trant won handily. I don't know if that surprised anybody, but, uh. Yeah, Boros. Uh, I know on Twitter it was seventy-three percent, twenty-seven voted that they would pick Marin if they were forced to choose. Yeah, clean sweep. There you for, have it for Marin yeah. Trent. Yeah, I believe one of our uh, one of our friends said that they just posted a meme that was just that just said basically, well, I'll just I guess I'll just die <laughs> rather than have to pick yes. between the two of them. So. <laughs> Yes. That was a Song of Ice and Fire Defender. Um, it, it was a good one. There you go. Guess I'll yep. die. I guess I'll die. I think it was George Carlin. The meme was of him. Oh, was I it? Think. I, I think didn't recognize the guy like in the picture, but I didn't look very closely. I just saw old guy. Yeah, and you know how All I right. am with actors. <laughs> Anyways, uh, Jamie? Jaime, let's do it. Would you know that he's deadly in a fight and a smile so wide to get cheating at the palm of his hand? Jamie Lannister got a thing for sister, gonna keep it quiet, so we'll push a kid out a window. And when that king's lying, dead, it doesn't matter, reason, bottom line is this the treason. At deep inside, could there be something only if you could see a hero? Could that be? Said Jamie, said Jamie, said Jamie Lannister, say it again, said Jamie, said Jamie. Said Jamie Lannister. Good old Lemon Frey is yelling about the king's decree again, threatening Edmure's head, and most of those within earshot just probably roll their eyes in response. But Jamie is more worried about the location of the Blackfish, whom Edmure let slip under a portcullis and into the Red Fork overnight. They searched high and low within River Run 
before finding this out, and the search now continues along the riverbanks, but Jamie had doubts he'd find them. Few doubts, though, that Brynden would continue the fight in some capacity. Edmure gives Jamie a piece of his mind. I'm just going to read some of that real quick here. He says, This was my father's solar. He ruled the Liverlands from here, wisely and well. He liked to sit beside that window. The light was good there, and whenever he looked up from his work, he could see the river. When his eyes were tired, he would have Cat read to him. Littlefinger and I built castles out of wooden blocks once. There, beside the door. You will never know how sick it makes me to see you in this room, Kingslayer. You will never know how much I despise you. Jamie does a little more than shrug in response and dismisses him. And then he ponders the whereabouts of the blackfish over a map before being interrupted by the westerlings. Jane and her mother are brought in. Jane is a bit of a frightened mess, still pining over her lost love as Norwegian blues pine for the fjords. Her mother, though, is ready to move on and to collect. She was promised marriages and land for their role in this whole affair. Specifically, Castamere for her brother Rolf Spicer, and worthy marriages to lords or heirs for Jane and her younger sister, not seen in this picture. Lady Westerling presses for more, including the return of her son Reynold, who was at the Red Wedding, unknown to her now but presumed dead, uh, and a marriage for him. Tywin had said to them, when all this was going down, if all goes well, you will have joy of me. Jamie twists the language cleverly and quickly exclaiming that joy is the bastard child of his uncle Garion, and that they could perform that match if Lady Westerling really wants. Of course, marriage to a bastard is insulting, and Lady Westerling leaves with that insult and others from the King's Lair. On the morrow, 400 men accompany Sir Forley Prester, Edmure, and the Westerlings on the way to Castle Rock. Prester seems capable. He's instructed his men to blister Edmure with arrows should he leave their side. Jamie tells him that Jane is far more dangerous, and asks that he guard her similarly. Next, Jamie makes his way to the Frey camp to meet with Edwin. He isn't greeted kindly. My father's blood is on your hands, sir! Apparently Ryman Frey and his party of fifteen were caught and hung outside of Fairmarket. A bold move by these outlaws. Edwin is now the heir, but suspects foul play from Black Walder currently at Seaguard. Another round of Lord of the Crossing has concluded. Jamie is sorry for the loss, but quickly moves on to the other matters. He needs the captives from the Red Wedding, all of them, even Reynold Westerling. But Walder Rivers, who's hanging around, informs him that Reynold cut Greywind free from his net and threw himself into the Green Fork after taking a bolt to the shoulder and one in the gut. No body was found, but there was a trail of blood on the way down. That night, Jamie spars with Illin again. He is getting better, but is still dominated by the former headsman. They drink afterward while Jamie confides in his mute, illiterate friend, certain that his secrets are safe. Jamie wonders aloud what to do with Cersei, to which Illin pretends to open his own throat. <coughs> Jamie respo Jamie's response is not one of horror or anger, but empathy. He would not dare do that to poor Tommen. Forget about any defense or emotion shown for Cersei. He's worried about Tommen. Anyway, the chapter wraps up with some housekeepings as various parties depart from River Run. The search for the Blackfish continues, but no luck, as the last party has lost two men to the ravaging party of wolves, the four-legged kind. 
He's also counseled to go to Raventree himself, that Titus Blackwood might speak to him, but will never deal with Jonas Bracken, who's trying to get him to surrender, and sits outside of his gates. Strong Boar heads back to Derry for a fight, looking for the Hound, and also likely for some fun with our good friend Gatehouse Amy. Jamie keeps his promise to Edmure, releasing his garrison unharmed, and ponders his next move. He longs to return to King's Landing to his son. In a touching moment, he considers real fatherhood with Tommen. But he has things to do first, namely, catch the blackfish. Lord Emmon addresses his new small folk while Jamie and Ryman's old singer watch. It's the first time Jamie has really taken note of the man, bedraggled and fiftieth a day with a big smile and a long nose. He has decided to stay on and try to last the winter as Emmon's singer. He reveals himself to be Thomas Evans, a name we know from the Brotherhood Without Banners. That night, Jamie dreams of his mother. Who are you? he asks. The question, she replies, is who are you? He only has one hand in this dream, and it feels real. His mother drifts away after insulting the accomplishments of both Jamie and Circe. Jamie awakens to winter. Ankle-deep snow, and a letter from his sister, her plea for help that we just heard about in her chapter. Does my lord wish to answer? asks Maester Vyman. No. Put this in the fire. And the chapter ends. <laughs> yeah, so Jamie is in. Um, I, it's just really interesting to play off of, of the of the last Cersei chapter. Cersei is in trouble. She needs help desperately, and her thoughts fly to her brother, who she has treated basically like shit like for the crap. last whole yep. book or so, mm-hmm. and begs him for help. Jamie is. In a mm, an interesting spot, he's got some things going on. He's doing well. He's turned his life around a little bit. He's trying to make better choices, and through both his conversation with Illyn and the action at the very end of this chapter, where he burns this letter or tells Peck to do it, he has shown that he is moved on. He's beyond this relationship entirely. Mm-hmm. And it's just funny to watch these twins rise and fall toward and away from each other um, as they grow and change, as the world affects them. You're right. That is one of the more interesting parts of especially this book, right? The Feast yeah. for Crows of, of seeing the, yeah, the kind of waxing and wanings of Jamie and Cersei. Uh, because I don't know about you, but when I, I think I remember when I first read this book, just being, I was, I was reasonably surprised when he said to rip up the letter because it was always, you'd get his thoughts and he's ticked off at Cersei and da, 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 but he's always there for her in the end. And this time was different. Um, what do you think? Do you think there was anything in particular that did it? Or do you think it was just the culmination of growth and growing apart from her and stuff? Uh, I don't know if there was a straw. Uh, I, I mean, we've talked about it a bunch of times in the chapters. Like you said, it's, it's one of the themes here that we've explored a lot. Um, but no, I don't know if there was a straw. I think he's just quick. He, he's quickly grown to see that what she wants from him is 
selfish and mm-hmm. not not actually caring for him um you know that she's Good not loyal you, to him Good yeah on that, you buddy she's not loyal to him she uses him she doesn't care for him she's not there for him emotionally um you know it takes it takes courage and sometimes just a lot of time and a lot of thinking which he's had a lot of time to do on this trip to river run yeah. Uh, to really move, and, and certainly the distance helps, to get out of a abu- an abusive relationship, and that's what he's in with Cersei, right? Absolutely. And, you know, I am I am the first attacker of Jamie. I do not think he is an innocent, um, but he for sure is in a relationship with her that is not good for him, and you know, good on him for making some changes and getting out. Yeah, the I guess yeah, there wasn't really a straw, but the catalyst was certainly. Uh, Brienne and his experiences with her, of course. Sure. Escape. Yeah, I, that I think without that, obviously, without question, a catalyst is a good word. Without that, he doesn't even see the rest of this stuff. Sure. There was the moment when he comes back, when he's like, he's so changed from this, mm-hmm. and he can just see that she's the same person, and he's gone through all this growth. I can't remember the exact moment or, or, or what it was that was said, but it was so clear that she had no respect at all for any of the journey he had just gone on and didn't want to hear it. And, you know, he was just changed. You know, I have, I have, uh, I have some friends that got divorced recently and, um, semi recently. And, you know, one of them just wanted to go, go back and do all these kinds of things that, you know, normally you do when you're younger. And the other was just like, I I've done that. I'm not, I'm not in that place anymore. I can't, you know, I'm not, I don't want to do that with you. I'm beyond that now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's similar. Cersei's in the same space she's been in playing these same, you know, very important games. And Jamie has elevated his conscience to a different level, right? Right. Yep. He really has. And going back to the earlier Brienne chapter, Lem says there's no way that Jamie would go behind his sister's back to <laughs> to help the Stark kids, and that's of course exactly what he's done. So, yeah, because you're right. It's it's she's Cersei's still playing the old games, you know. She's still going to the high school football games and stuff, and uh, Jamie's yeah. elevated things a little bit. So, but you know she. As much as like she feels she can always rely on him and that that's her safe place, something struck me when I was reading this chapter when Jamie's talking to Lady Westerling, and it's just a, a very simple part of the chapter where he's saying, but Lady Sybil herself had been born a spicer from a line of upjumped merchants. Her grandmother had been some sort of half-mad witchwoman from the East, he seemed <laughs> to recall. Mm-hmm. Like, we just talked about how huge... This whole little scene with Maggie the Frog was to Cersei's whole being. It became the thing that drove most of her actions. Yeah. And Jamie barely remembers the woman. Jamie doesn't even know it. Yeah. And, like, it's shaped his whole, his sister's whole life. Uh-huh. And he barely even remembers her. And, like, were Cersei and Jamie that close? Sometimes, sometimes you get these, these, like, markers in your life that are, like, signposts almost like you help identify you like as long oh, as you have sure. that that thing you identify with it's like a safe zone oh I've, I've always got that right i think cersei is that for jamie and jamie is that for cersei but 
I don't know how deep it ever was, right? You're absolutely right. Yep. And they were okay with that. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. For them. Yeah. And, well, this is where I come down on Jamie. I mean, Cersei was okay with it because I think she got everything she wanted. Jamie, maybe he's the victim and I shouldn't be coming down on him, but he, he, in my mind, he was a powerful enough person, a smart enough person, quick-witted enough, and he let himself be manipulated. Yeah, it's almost and like let people make his choices for him, and and I've said this before in this cast, but he's he, he's he's complicit in all of it, right? Absolutely, you're absolutely right, and that's a really good point. Is that Cersei at least was always striving for something? She was always driven. Jamie, he was to a certain degree. It seems like he constantly worked to become a better warrior. You know, he was very determined in that way. He always wanted to be the best in that regard. But it didn't seem like he had like a, a an endpoint, like a goal that he wanted to attain, that he wanted to get to, other than just wanting to be the best. Um, so it yeah. seems like there was a little bit of him being a little bit lost in the shuffle. And, and, you know, as we've analyzed his character, we've learned how important it is for him to get respect and things like that and how much being the Kingslayer really does eat away at him when he tries to ignore it. But it didn't seem like he had, like, something he was trying to get to. I guess you could say maybe Lord Commander of the Kingsguard. But his priorities always seemed unimportant, at least, to maybe where Cersei was kind of going. I don't know. This is a new thought for me that I'm trying to just talk through with you. Yeah, no, I see. I see a little bit where you're going. I mean, I, he. Well, in project management, we talk a lot about like tasks versus, you know, strategic projects, right? Mm. And I feel like Jamie was, for much of his life, content to do the tasks set to him, and That's a good he analogy. was given yep. kind of an overall goal of where it was going, like Kingsguard or you know, mm-hmm. best knight in the land or these things. So, so it gave him goals that these tasks related to that he could just yep train every day at six doing it yep i'm gonna be the best i can be at this right and but 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 he i don't think he ever had the big picture that seriously had Mm -hmm. and you know not not i don't want to give seriously too much credit because it's almost like maybe she had that because of this fucked up vision she got yes like here's your roadmap you gotta tear down that prophecy yep Right. And uh-huh. and Jamie was just kind of he allowed himself to be led through these tasks to get to some goal that maybe wasn't really even his. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm with you. I, I don't my thoughts aren't really firm on it, but it be worth maybe a little more exploration. I don't know. It's a new thought. The Lannister, sure. the Lannister siblings are, are there. They are <clears throat> way more interesting than I originally thought on my first reads. Totally. Um, There's way so deeper. much to peel back about these guys. All three yeah. of them. Right. All three of them. Even Tywin to a degree. They're fascinating, well-written characters. Yep. Okay. Um, Trying to look. I don't think I have much else on this one. Let me me look. Here's Um, a question. Would Tommen want to know about Jamie? If he asks that. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Do you think he would... I'm trying to think of how Tommen 
would react to this news. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's not like he was attached to Robert at all. Robert was... He was seven uh, when Robert died. Um, having that's a child that's... Robert Go wasn't ahead. much of a, you know, a present father in any case. Not that many dads were, especially kings um, there, but... So I don't feel like yeah. Tommen had a particular attachment to Robert. Um, Agreed. But I yeah, Robert was a terrible father. Um, he doesn't really have imag- much of an attachment to Jamie either, though. No, just on um, Jamie. It, it's a sad. It's sad. I feel like he's mostly attached to those damn cats. Um, yeah, because his mom is a mess. Who? She's has... attentive to some degree, like. I get the intent she gives hugs but not love. You know what I mean? Sure. Uh-huh. I do. Like I I I don't I don't know that he feels loved even though she does love him. We just covered that. You did a good job of it in her chapter. But I don't know that he feels loved. And oh, for that agree. reason, you can see him attach himself to Marjorie so quickly because she gives him I mean, she's coached, right? But I think I think her interest in him is not... I think she does like him. I think she is interested in teaching him things and becoming his friend and doing these things if that's the way this goes for them, right? You certainly hope so. You certainly hope so because he is missing that in his life and he's such a sweet yeah. boy that it really is... Yeah, it, like, I've, like I've charged Cersei with before, she loves her children to the point of them making her look good in many yeah, instances right. and yep. yeah hugs but not love i think is a, a great kind of heartbreaking way to describe that yeah i mean you would hope that uh that just about anyone uh would choose the father over the chair with tommen you know they they keep making a point of that, that he loves you know pressing the seal into the wax or whatever Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a little cutesy way of, you know, representing him as the king, but it also could serve as a bit of an underscore for the fact that that is all he gets out of this. Mm-hmm. He is young, and so, so maybe that's all it means, but maybe all he gets out of it is the seal, and he has no interest in this king's stuff, right? Mm-hmm. It's a metaphor for the fact that he isn't into it, and, you know, maybe he would for sure pick a father. I'd hope so. That would be cool. I would too. Yeah. Little Jamie and Tommen. Just father, son, traipsing about Westeros together. Just having a good old time. I don't know. I have a question for you. Okay. Um, first of all, ballsy from Edmure to let 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 the blackfish go. It's, uh, yeah. Oh, we've ignored that to this point, haven't we? Bold. Besides your, yeah, what you said in your summary. Uh, but then, as they're as they're getting ready to depart, uh, they, by they I mean Edmure and the Westerlings and, and the party at 400, doubled from 100 to 2, then 2 again to 4. Oh no, don't um, ask it, because I don't know the answer. Oh, do you know what I'm going to ask? Is it about capturing Tully for the third time? Yes! <laughs> what the hell? I don't know what it is. When did he capture him once? <laughs> I don't. I don't feel like Edmure was ever captured at any point. Uh, right? 
Unless you count, like, capturing him in his wedding bed as a capture. So there's the, the Red Wedding uh-huh. uh, is kind of a capture. And the only other thing I could think of is when he kind of backed Edmure into, uh, into a corner um, in the last chapter. The, when Edmure's taking a bath. And he says, you basically do this or I'll send your wife and baby to you in a trebuchet. Could that be capturing him? I don't. I, that's a that's a pretty liberal definition of the word capture, right? Uh, I mean, he's already he's already under their control. Then that counts as the the red wedding capture. I I don't know what they're talking about. So wanna... let us know if you have any other thoughts, Kalisar. Because yeah, I, please. I devoted a reasonable <laughs> amount of time to looking for the answer, and that's the best I could come up with. I was trying to think, like when they, when when Jamie first was around River River Run before the Whispering Wood. Yeah, nothing Scad's, happened there. Scad's adult entertainment name. Yeah, uh, Jamie got captured. Jamie not did. Did around. he capture yeah. Edmure before that? I don't think so. Nope, he didn't. They had beaten them, right around River Run. They'd won a battle, mm-hmm. but they didn't capture him. He was still yeah. there when he showed when when Rob showed up. I I'm so confused by that statement. Yep. <sighs> That's those are the only two I can think of is Red Wedding and then backing him into a corner to do what he wanted him to do in terms of turning right. the castle over. That's all I can think right. of. Right. Okay. Um I only really have two more things. One of them's really uh really quick. Um It'd be nice to know how good Illin is at fighting. <laughs> like Jamie's getting to the point where he's yeah, holding like... his own. Yeah, like, does that mean he could beat yeah. most people, or is Illin just kind of like average, right? Right. Well, we know the main reason for Illin cho- or Jamie choosing Illin is not so much his prowess, yes, but his lack of t- tongue, <laughs> his loyalty, and his silence. Yeah, yeah. Which I did think, how great would it be if Illin like secretly had learned to read or write? I totally have that note written down. Like Jamie, <laughs> you got to be a little more careful, bud. <laughs> yeah. It'd be awesome if, like, if deep down, Illin was, like, Pod and, like, a really good person. Right. And, and, and like, he's like, I'm just writing this out and sending it to people. Yeah. He'll publish some memoirs one day. <laughs> um, the other... Yeah, memoirs. The other one I have is uh, just a little... A little bit on Black Walder. So it's it's heavily intimated in this chapter that uh Blackwalder who is at Seaguard mm-hmm. um is Ed, Edwin's little brother. Edwin's little brother, right. So he's now second in line after the death of Ryman. He's second in line for the twins. Mm-hmm. Uh that he has been killing people, both both organized the, the death of Ryman or looked the other way while the outlaws did it or something. Mm-hmm. And also potentially the murder of oh geez I forgot his name the one that died in the Westerlands, um, in his tent that died mm-hmm. of like coughing or whatever mm-hmm. I can't remember his name now but but that one, um, and then also he's been sleeping with the wives of his uh, of his other claimants yeah to like he's, cast he's, doubt on the legitimacy of guy. them yeah yeah. Well, he's, he's doing it so that any sons can be discounted, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. It's like, they're not legitimate. They're mine. Yep. 
or something. So he is a scheming dude. We don't talk much about like the fray succession because it just feels like Walder's never going to die. But there's been a lot of backdoor shenanigans going on for this. And uh, I don't know. Black Walder seems like he's a formidable guy. Feels like, you know, could mean something in the future. Could, yeah. It's There's so many levels because, like you said, Walder just won't die. And there's so much posterity that it's almost like if you want to get ahead, you got to make power plays. Right? Yep. You got yep. You got to do something big to jump up a few spots. So, uh, Last real quick thing. I don't think it matters. But technically, Jamie doesn't burn the letter. Uh, he gives it to Peck to burn it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been noted that some of these river lords seem wolfish, and uh, Peck is certainly one of them. Uh, and maybe didn't burn it and maybe has the letter. I don't know that it would mean much, but uh, it's out there. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right, ready to move on? Uh, yeah, let's just make the quick point. You mentioned Thomas Evans. Yeah. Um, and uh, just some connective tissue between this chapter and the Brienne chapter. Of course, they talked about how uh, the night prior to Brienne meeting Lady Stoneheart, that Stoneheart and others had been at Fair Market, um, and then they'd returned to these caves. And then in this chapter, we're told, after hanging some people, hanging a party of Freys, and then in this chapter, we're told that Ryman was hanged with all his party about two leagues south of Fair Market. So nothing, you know, revelatory there. Just wanted to mention that connective tissue and how Thomas Evans, being in the Brotherhood Without Banners, was probably the guy that got the message out there that uh, alerted the Brotherhood's... Uh, brotherhood to Ryman coming. So. Yeah, uh, that or the whore that was with Ryman, uh, who had the crown. Because yes. we see that we don't know much Kat had the crown uh, in those caves. Yeah. Uh, so one or both of them involved yeah. there, probably. Stoneheart does have the crown, yep. Okay, um, let's go to a question then. Yes. Before we move on, this is from our buddy uh, Donneris, who scared Australian. We right? just love you, mate. Um, he asks, he'd like to know about our recording process. Uh, he asks, are you in the same room? He says, when do the SLC hook up for their Davos banter and hijinks? He just has a way with words that I just love. He does indeed. Uh, um, we are not in the same room. We have never recorded together. In fact, it's been, well, it's been months since we've seen each other in the flesh. Yeah, Isn't we went it? to lunch in December or something, didn't we? Or... Yeah. yeah. Is it December? Yeah, it's been a bit. Yeah, we live it has. in the same city. <laughs> Don't yeah. see each other much. Uh, but we've always just recorded from home. Um, I in my office and Scad in his, and we are connected over Skype. And then we each, uh, as far as our recording process goes, we both record into our own computers. And then when editing, I take our two audio feeds and combine them and go through a little process of cleanup and ta-da, there you go, in a nutshell. He does a great job. Yeah, we I, we talked about, uh, I remember back back when Brooke was, was mm-hmm. recording with us. Um, hey, Brooke, if you're out there listening. Um, that we, we talked about getting together to record, and frankly, the idea, I remember talking, talking about this with you guys, the idea scared me a little bit 
Right. Like, would I would I be more hesitant or whatever if I was like looking at you in the eye? Uh-huh. How also like technically, I've never understood how this works with radio and stuff. Like how they don't get crosstalk on the mics. Right. I, I still don't know how that would work. I know with gain control and all sorts of shit, you can do things. Right. But it scared and stuff like that. Yeah, it scared me. I was like, I don't know that technically it would work. Um, so we've always had this kind of very comfortable way that we do things, and uh, it's always worked for us. Yeah. It's worked. So why change it at this point? Yeah, indeed. Yeah. It's it's weird how we have learned to kind of read each other's I think read each other's silences and stuff like that it's interesting (laughs) how you can kind of compensate for not being able to see each other and read face facial expressions and stuff it's kind of cool yeah yep uh so there's the answer to that question I don't know if there's um much more to say it says when do we hook up for our Davos banter and hijinks we do every three weeks and we do it uh generally on a Friday night right yep um we started at 9.30 Mountain Standard Time, and we usually go till 12.30, 1 o'clock or so. Yeah, later lately, uh, as our episodes have gotten longer and longer. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, we, we don't... Matt and I are kind of both both homebodies, if you meant how do we get together for other types of hijinks. We don't much. I mean, we went to a Kevin Smith <laughs> show a while ago. Mm-hmm. Um, we've certainly talked about going to the Hold Steady if they come back, maybe. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we don't, we don't, I don't go hang out with anybody really. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, we, we don't, we don't get together that much other than lunch every now and then. Yep. But yeah. We All are right. old men. So, um, yeah. let's go to Danny. Let's do it up. Okay. Silver hair and purple eyes, always on the go. Kicking it with the dragon kids and Joe the and oh, she knows just where she gotta go and won't be Tyrion. Look out, Westerosa comes the nearest Targaryen. Danny and Dario, the double D's, lay abed in one of their few remaining nights together. It is nearly dawn, and Danny reflects on this man she's come to love. His attitude, his complete lack of conscience. And whether he loves her, or whether he loves the Dragon Queen, she would give up her crown for him, she thinks. He awakes, and they do the Nightingale Lark routine before he gets out of bed, offering to marry her again and ditch this Hisdar fool. But she won't. She can't. Her people need this peace that Hisdar has promised. She watches him dress, loving him. He convinces her to hold court tomorrow. He has Westerosi that want to see her and that have gifts for her. She agrees and watches him leave, missing him. Missandei brings her food, Eerie some clothes, and Danny faces one of her last days in a daze on the patio looking to see and to land for to her besiegers. So many out there, her only hope was that Hisdar could bring the peace that he has promised. Apparently she doesn't do anything else that day, because it's night again. Seriously, nothing happened that day. She just hangs out on the patio and counts troops. Subtract one from her allotment of vacation days, please. In the morning, though, she holds court as promised. The first petitioner is the Green Grace, Galaza Galaire. I would speak to you about the presumption of a certain Aselsort captain. Wow. Just wow. Danny covers this Galaza's uh, blatant statement about Dario by saying that she too 
is upset at Ben Brown Ben Plum's betrayal and asks that Glossagler pray for peace. I shall pray for you as well, the Green Grace replies. The only other really notable thing is when Dario does show up at court with his Westerosi. The Dornish admit to being knights and to coming under the false names of Green Guts, Frog, and Gerald. Jerus and Norgaris and Archibald reveal themselves, and Frog presents a paper. We know the rest, really, but I'll remind you, a secret pact that would have tied Dorn to the Targaryens through marriage, Viserys to Arianne. Why the delay? Why didn't this happen? Well, according to Quentin, Doran, his father, was willing to wait until Viserys found his army. At the reveal that Doran is Quentin's father, Danny laughs as Q turns red. She has figured out the riddle. A frog, when kissed, becomes a prince. Dorne, of course, means to swap Viserys and Arianne for Danny and Q, but the court is just short of erupting in laughter, and the criticisms come down. This frog is too young. Danny needs to marry a Giscari for peace. You are but three men. How do we know you represent all of Dorne? But the only opinion that matters is that of the Queen of Dragons. She is pledged to wed his dar now, and must continue on that path. Barrist interrupts! always a pro- proponent of going home, pleads that this, mish- this this information from Dorne changes everything. Danny counters that it changes nothing. But she does second-guess herself a little bit, asking Barristan what the arms of Dorne are. In hearing, though, that it is a son with a spear, she remembers the prophecy. The sun's son. And remembering that, that she was told to beware the sun's son, she dismisses all all of it, and continues on her plans to marry Hisdar. That night, Dario had her every way a man can have a woman. Thanks for that detail, George. He departs her at dawn, fucking Queens is king's work, he says as he leaves her, and he leaves to make a sortie, presumably to bring Danny the head of Brown Ben Plum, and Danny wonders why he couldn't be better born. Danny eschews the typical palanquin for a sedan chair so she isn't cooped up in the heat, and so the people can see her ride through the city streets to her wedding. She makes her way there, and Quentin makes one last plea, focusing on the loyalty of Dorne. But Danny's mind is made up. She must do this. But please, um, totes support me later when I need it, okay? Bye! On the way to her ceremony, Danny asks the bold about her parents. Did they love anyone else? He confesses that both Rayella and Ares had other interests. She had a young knight of the Stormlands, and he had a strong want of Joanna Lannister. But they did their duty despite their lusts. As always, in the middle of this story, we are interrupted. The Bolt never gets to finish a story about Danny's parents. It's hilarious. Anyway, his Dar's chair collides paths with hers, and they ride the rest of the way together. Feet are washed, vows exchanged, and they are married. Ugh. Ugh. End of chapter. Explain to me your blech. Uh It's a distasteful marriage. She doesn't want it. She's, uh, you know, we get the high point of her exclaiming her love for this other man that she's fallen mm-hmm. for. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, 15 pages later, or whatever the hell it is, she's tied herself to this guy that she doesn't care at all for. That's, ugh. She admits that she may grow fond of him in time. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, the Dario stuff, it's, it's, I want to love you like a love song, baby, or however that song goes. 
it's just like I was dead and he brought me back to life. I was asleep and he woke me. All this waxing poetic, just completely in love with this guy Uh, or in lust, depending on how you look at it. Yeah. uh, There's a healthy amount of infatuation. And you know what song I couldn't help but think of? She's talking how she didn't want it. She didn't want the night to end and stuff. Didn't want the day to come. Everyone's favorite graduation song from the late '90s, early 2000s that ended up just being a song about a one-night stand. Here's to the night we felt alive. Here's to the nights we felt alive. Here's to the tears you knew you'd cry. Here's to goodbye. Tomorrow's gonna come too soon. Do you remember that one? I do not know that song. Eve Six. Here's mm. to the tears we knew you'd cry. I feel like Eve Six is a video game. That song was no. huge for a while. I was scared. I don't. I don't know this. You I... were you were neck deep in meatloaf at the time. It's <laughs> probably neck deep in Metallica. <laughs> what years would those have been? The late nineties, oh, probably. Oh, that album was probably two thousand one. Actually, two thousand two. No. I mean, I found no new music in college. Almost none. Mm. Relied on my back catalog of. That's okay. yeah. Meat was in there. You find what works for you. Indeed. Uh, yeah, I, I don't... She professes her love, and, you know, who are we to judge, but that's what we do on this podcast. Feel alive, yes. Feel sexy, fuck yeah. Gonna miss him, definitely. Yeah. But she notes many times things that she just despises about this guy. Mm-hmm. And I don't think she's in love with him. Even... I think she's a, I think she's awakened her loins and her just passion in general and that's easy to confuse with love but eh. yeah he's he's kind of similar in kind of his ruthless nature to Khal Drogo who she also developed quite the affinity for um yeah but I believe that was love Eh, I don't know yeah it kind of goes back you know Danny's has such a propensity to be so sweet that you wonder why does she fall for men like this and I, like like the Dario's of the world and like the, you know, Khal Drogo's. Uh, and maybe it comes back to the dragon inside of her, you know. Viserys calling it Waken the Dragon. It, there's something about that ruthlessness. She responds to the strength that, and the, Danny the passion and the fire. To. Right, yeah. yeah maybe. Know, but... Well, there's that bit, uh, what is it? Is it Barristan that says it? About mud and how it can be used. Is that Or is that in the future? Maybe I'm spoiling. I don't recall enough. Oh no, look at us now. We'll leave it for another time. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, she's, you know, she's a young girl and she's, you know, got the fiery passion going and good for her. But uh, look, there's there's certainly something to be said for like a hot body and, you know, beefcake status. Uh, I don't want to dismiss it, just... I, she says enough things about things she doesn't like about him that it doesn't sound like love to me, that's all. Well, you know, you, you mentioned it in your summary that she's fallen for him. She would give up her crown for him. But she knows, or she is assuming quite strongly, that he he if it wasn't for the crown, he wouldn't be around. Yeah, right. And that right there tells you that, that things aren't fair. So, 
Yeah. They're being reciprocated. Yeah. But also, like, Dario... Jeez, he's just a tool. Like, he's got two nights left with, you know, the woman that he self-proclaims is the hottest chick out there. Like, the dreamiest, most, you know, outrageous girl in the Seven Kingdoms and, and Essos to boot. And he gets plastered. He gets plastered for one of them. <laughs> Come on, man. Maybe this is bugging him more than he's letting on. Yeah, yeah. Drinking I mean, was his way to deal with it. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe I'm giving him too much credit, and he's just a tool. It's probably maybe it's a little of both. Yeah. But I, I'll tell you this. Danny says to him, "I command you to fuck me." And someday, Matt, someday someone will say this to me. <laughs> That's hot. Because that is hot as shit right there. Well, and he just he just dismisses it, right? He's like offended by it. Uh, it takes all kinds. It does. I well, command you to fuck me. Come on. That's amazing. Uh, let me know. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, will do. And I'll buy you dinner. <laughs> well, we can go Dutch. Okay, <laughs> uh, so we've got Quentin. Um, yeah, we'll just point he him was the out. big thing. The poor guy. Like we've we've been privy to his journeys to get to Danny and what they've yeah. suffered to go through. Wah wah. Yeah, you know, <laughs> George is just brilliant. Uh, he, <laughs> it's just hilarious because poor Quentin, and, and I don't even mean our friend poor Quentin. <laughs> hey, Emmett. Uh, I don't even mean that. I just mean when he's writing these chapters, this is the kind of thing that would normally be like a cliffhanger thing at the end of a chapter. Right. Right. Sure. He presents the letter. My dad wants you to marry me and we'll come together and rule the seven kingdoms. Cliffhanger. Bang. Yeah, move Danny on. Danny looks up in right. shock. End of chapter. Right. And whether she goes with it or doesn't go with it, it doesn't matter. It's a big swelling moment of importance. Mm-hmm. But it isn't. Even this big moment is just like, ah, you know, we're we're sweeping it aside and we're moving on to like the last night she got fucked many always by this other dude by beefcake man and it's just like dismissed it's it's not even important enough to be the end chapter moment right meanwhile he's had people die to get him there yes it's it's a great to get i don't i don't know that you classify it as a literary device but it's it's brilliant use of pacing or I don't know, structure Something. to yeah. illustrate how unimportant this is in the grand scheme of things oh, to Danny so right. and to, to everyone else. You are so right. Poor Quentin. Yeah. Yeah. Poor Quentin. Um, in perhaps what is, I don't know, a reasonable summary for most of Danny's time in Marine. Mm-hmm. Uh, a queen loves where she must, not where she will. And, and not necessarily just the loving part, but Danny has this whole time she's been trying to like figure out how to rule. Mm-hmm. And I think I think I think this is why 
Danny's whole arc in this book is frustrating to people. Her whole arc in dance, she's this woman of compromise and trying to like figure out how she can get the city to work with her and you know get all these people to get along and all this stuff in the early books she's a woman of chance of risk of just dragon badassery right and here it's just sitting waiting compromising trying to strike a deal not being able to affect change Mm -hmm. and yeah a queen loves where she must not where she will she has to just make these sacrifices to get her people safe right but it's frustrating to read it really is, and it it kind of shows, you know, we've got this book's this series. The first book is called Game of Thrones, and everyone's vying for power. And we kind of find, especially in these Danny chapters, that power, in a way, enslaves, right? All of a sudden, yeah. you have to do things a certain way. And you're right about Danny in the early book. She survives purely by force of will sometimes. She just keep going and took chances and everything. And now here she is and she's kind of forced to temper that those best qualities about her that make her such a great ruler and such a, a great person, really. Um, she has to kind of give that up a bit in order to rule. It's kind of a double-edged sword. Yeah, you just said it. I, I hadn't thought of it that way, but the way you said it, you said makes her a great ruler. Mm-hmm. And I I wonder if she is. I don't know if we know that. She's a great conqueror. I don't know if we know. I mean, she's kind of trying to prove that here, right? That's what yeah. she's doing. Maybe I should use a better word. I think she's a good leader. Yeah, I agree um, with that. Yeah. And I think she showed that really, you know, in the Red Waste and stuff like that. Uh but you're right. The, She's decisive, the, right? And she doesn't back down from tough choices. Mm-hmm. What we're seeing is ruling is sometimes different than leading. Yeah. Um, maybe they're two sides of the same coin. But right. yeah, she's learning some crazy lessons, and so are we. Indeed. I've had some new thoughts on this podcast. I've kind of just had to talk through as I've had them. So yeah. this is good. This has been a good episode in that regard. Yeah. Um, you got anything else for this chapter? I don't have much. Not really. Uh, I'm ready to move on to John if you are. Let's do it up. Okay. Where we're going up north where the winter's cold and the icicles bloom like the bluest rose. We haven't met his mom, but we love his wolf. He's John Snow. John, 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 John. Queen Selyse arrives at Castle Black with her court, such as it is, and fifty southern swords, and immediately asks John to take her to the Lord Commander. Chop, chop. Also with them is one Tycho Nestorus, a well-dressed banker from the Iron Bank of Bravos, a man John very much hopes can help the Night's Watch survive the coming winter. Selyse and her retinue were not there for long, though, just a quick stopover before heading on to the Night Fort which John warns them is far from complete, even urging them to reconsider going back to Eastwatch. But Solice won't consider it. That's a non-starter. Ranging was easy, John. Commanding is harder. But this rhyme interrupted by a giant. Woon Woon shows up and kneels for the queen and scares the crap out of everyone with his laughter. It startles everyone so much that some of the knights draw their swords and are like ready to attack him on his knees. 
but John steps in to defuse the situation. One of the surliest knights, Sir Patrick of King's Mountain, leads Solis away, and John is finally left with Tycho Nestoris. Let me break down why this Bravosi banker is here. The crown racked up a huge debt with Robert. We know all this. We knew, too, that Baelish always kind of found a way to keep the bank at bay, likely paying mostly interest. Cersei has stopped paying at all, though. That's been noted several times as she builds her dromans and, uh, you know, feeds the war machine. Um, The Iron Bank normally gets its money or else. The Iron Bank, therefore, is looking to fund a claimant to the throne that will actually be a steward of the debt the throne still owes. But Tycho needs to talk with Stannis himself to feel it out, see if Stannis is that man for them. This is where John has an opportunity. He offers to help Tycho get to Stannis for a price. First, John seeks use of Tycho's three ships to help with saving Mother Mole and her children at Hardholm. Second, he seeks money to buy food and bring it to them until spring. It's a tall order. Real tall order. They negotiate for over an hour, but in the end, John has what he wants. But at what cost? We don't really know. But in John's own words, when the choice is debt or death, best borrow. While settling down to dinner after negotiations, Axel Florent approaches John. He wants to look at Val, the wildling princess. She has gone, as we know, north to seek Tormund, but John would rather Queen Selyse and her ilk knew not of it. It seems Axel has heard the rumor of her departure, though, as he is obdurate, demanding to see her. John flat-out tells Axel to drop it. Drop it, dude, but he will not, insisting that the queen could command John if need be. John just gets up and walks away, excusing himself before it comes to blows. That night, John falls asleep working in his chair, as I nearly did writing this summary, but he is awakened with news of a girl. A gray girl dying on a horse. Mel was right again. John rushes to see his sister, but finds the girl asleep and definitively, uh, not Arya. It is Alice Karstark, whom John had met as a young boy and whom he now recognizes. She pleads for him to help her, insisting that her uncle Arnulf is trying to force her to marry her cousin Cregan to ensure he gains control of Carhold. They are doing everything they can to seize control. Hell, the only reason they joined Stannis in the first place was in hopes it would provoke the Lannisters into killing the current heir to the Carhold, Harry and Karstark, whom they have captive. Once Cregan has a child by Alice, she too would be removed. She pleads for help yet again. John insists, this is a matter for Stannis, man, leave me out of it. But Alice laughs a bitter laugh and insists that Stannis also is a dead man walking. You see, Arnulf will betray Stannis as soon as he arrives at the Stannis camp. He is and has been in secret allied with Roose for gold and for young Harry's head. So again she pleads, protect me. The chapter ends. That was unexpected. Yeah. Uh, you mean Alice showing up? Right. <laughs> yeah. Mel is right about the pale rider on a dying horse, wrong about the identity of said person. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, you go back to her her POV, and we shouldn't be that surprised that she's wrong about the identity. She's kind of... She gets visions of stuff and fills in the details with, well, sometimes with what she thinks people want to hear. Yeah, exactly. And what what will motivate them to action? Right. Essentially, we're specifically taking the action that will benefit her her interests. But, right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So uh, I don't know. Um, you know, outside of this, 
Alice showing up and, um, you know, John's hopes for seeing his sister being crushed. I guess the, the most important part, of, I, don't, I don't have a lot for this chapter really, maybe the most important part is this Iron Bank stuff. Right. Um, you know, uh, John expresses wonder at how stupid the Lannisters could be, you know, to let this debt go and then immediately enters into business with these guys, knowing he has no way to repay them. Um, you know, interesting. It really is, and I found myself paying closer attention to to the Iron Bank this time around. Um, because it is interesting how they can essentially, well, they can help control things. Because, you know, they say they're coming to collect debt, but they, you know, just like any credit card company, they don't want you to pay up, pay off your debt right yeah they want the interest they want the interest um you know and maybe and maybe evidence that you can pay some principal sure and so that you seem secure and that's where the idea of stannis has to seem appealing to these bankers because he's got just enough honor that he'll probably make those those payments right Yeah. yeah but um you know like we just paid for uh, trip to you know Disneyland where we're going in a couple months like you are and yeah. uh, we're not going together though everybody unfortunately that'd be fun though um, and you know the, buying our airline tickets you know you get $200 off if you get the Southwest credit card or whatever so we were like yeah let's do it and you know so we got the credit card and paid for the airline tickets and turn around and just we paid the credit card right off again so no interest accrued nothing Um but uh, we got we got a bill for it, you know, before we paid it off. Do you know what the minimum payment was? It it was almost three grand that we had put on this card to pay for the flights and some other things okay. on the trip. Okay. The minimum payment on almost three grand was twenty eight dollars a month. Yeah, I was I was gonna say around fifty, but yeah, <laughs> twenty eight dollars a month. Yeah. it's nothing. You'd never pay it off, right? Yeah, it, it, the projection was like fifteen years. You'd pay yeah. three grand off. And you yeah. end up paying how much more? <clears throat> um, and uh, that's what the bank wants. It's in their best interest to keep this war going. Yeah. Uh, I was watching that movie War Dogs with Miles Teller in it and Jonah Hill. And they said that's what war is really about. War is an economy. Anybody who tells you otherwise is either in it, in on it, or stupid. Um, yeah. That's where they lifted our country out of the Great Depression, right? I mean, (laughs) right? It's, uh, yeah. So, yeah, the Iron Bank wants to keep this war going, I think, um, because of that. But they do, like you said, they want to see the interest and they want to see some principle, perhaps. But also, I wonder though, how much? How much are they really? too concerned about Westeros we've we've seen some of the richness and lavishness over in Essos and you have to wonder like for the Iron Bank is Westeros a huge investment for them compared to maybe some of the debts that or some of the financing they've done over in Essos I don't know it's a good question um you know like you just said war is expensive and 
you know, the free cities are, you know, they do skirmishes and stuff, and there's certainly a war coming, um, you know, there with the, that they've been foreshadowing with, with Danny and whose side people are going to come down on and things like that. But it's not, it's not in this kind of constant state of war that Westeros is in. Sure. I imagine they profit pretty heavily from Westeros. They probably look at them kind of like those silly fumbling bumpkins over there that can't figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and just like you said, keep profiting from it. Yeah. Um, keep making your minimum payment, your 28 bucks. Yeah, I mean, it's probably like one of, you know, they've probably got like a regional director of Westeros and <laughs> it's one of their many regions, right? Yeah. Well, they, yeah, um... And the sad thing about all this is, is that Jon Snow's trying to get this money to buy food from the South. Yeah. Yet what do we find out in Jamie's chapter? <laughs> they don't have any. That winter that came, at least doesn't. and it yeah. killed a bunch of crops, and they're not going to have much either. Yeah. Well, and, and that, that's a, a result of the crops being burned as well, so they don't, they yep. don't have things set aside from before. I, th- I imagine there is food. Uh, the Vale certainly has been hoarding it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they've haven't been touched by the war, and and the Reach as well has mostly stayed, um, and you Peter, know, mostly stayed away from it. Yeah, Peter brought that up, and I think the chapters in our last episode, where one of the guys in the Vale wanted to start selling their food, and he said, "Nope, wait a little yeah. longer. Yeah. Let's drive that price up." Right, and that that's where I was going to go is... Uh, oh, sorry. No, 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 it's fine. It's just, he's, he's, who knows what calculations John's done. He's not a banker, mm-hmm. doesn't buy food. <laughs> you know, I don't know what he thinks he knows what he's doing, but, uh, you know, what did he calculate how much he would need? Because it's probably double what he mm-hmm. thinks he needs. Because, like you said, demand is going to be high and uh, supply is low. Mm-hmm. Another thing that I think we forget about, we talked about this before, we brought up John is physically, emotionally, mentally just beat, right? Yeah. He tries his best to keep going, but we saw that in this chapter where he just fell asleep at his desk, right? Yeah. And just slept. And he talks about, I think the quote was, God's, I'm tired. Um, How long can he continue to function at this level and still be counted upon to make good, well-reasoned decisions, you know, um, nothing against him. And I think he's awfully resilient, but like, I remember the first year with our twins when they were babies Mm. and the lack of sleep that my wife and I went through. And I say, remember, and I use that term loosely because it's kind of just a big haze of just exhaustion. Mm. (laughs) You couldn't count on me to do anything some of the time during that yeah. first year. And, uh, you know, with those responsibilities that John has, at what point does he break, you know? Yeah, no, it's a good point. Uh, you know, the more tired you are, the more kind of frustrated and angry you can become. The oh, yeah. more often you might make kind of like snap decisions out of, you know, with the wrong motivation. Um We've certainly said, I think John's doing a, a pretty bang up job, but we've mm-hmm. certainly said before that like he doesn't share as much information with his people as he should. He doesn't delegate maybe as well as he should. He doesn't learn to trust people. Trust, yeah. All that could be a function of fatigue, right? Mm-hmm. Like not taking the time, you know, to to do things this way because he's so tired and just 
snapping to some decision. Yep. Yeah. It's a good point. Um, a little callback to your, uh, the, the cool thought that you had clear back on our parenting episode. Um, uh-huh. I don't know what you're talking about, so right? you better fill me in. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a little thing, uh, going to Alice Karstark now. Um, Rickard, Rickard Karstark, Alice's dad, thought that Rob and Alice would be a good match, and so he brought her to Winterfell and met Rob when they were all kids, and she met Jon Snow as well. Um, and that brought up that question that you asked, is all over the kingdom, people are becoming betrothed, you know, are getting betrothed to other houses and stuff at a very young age. But as far as we knew, Eddard had not promised any of his kids to anybody else ever. Oh, yeah. Right. And yeah. sometimes it happens when they're very young. Um, but even Rob didn't have anyone. The first instance we get, first and only instance we get of a betrothal is, of course, Joffrey and Sansa. And, you know, that's not that something was... you turn down. When... Well, it also wasn't like his idea. Nope. Like it was Robert. As, as the lord of his region, he's proposing those things and like mm-hmm. having the final say. This was a marriage he couldn't say no to because it was like, literally the only dude more powerful than him in the kingdom yep. that could kind of force his will on it, you know, and a friend of his. But, so, you know, yeah, like you said, he kind of probably felt like he had to accept it. Um, yeah, I, I think I think on that parenting episode, I, I might have overreached. I don't know, I think I said it's... I think I, I, think I came down kind of hard on the Starks for being irresponsible mm-hmm. with, with their lack of matches for their children. Mm-hmm. Um... But maybe not. I don't remember. You guys can go listen and tell me whether I remember right or not. Uh, <laughs> it's on our Patreon page. It was a fun little episode we did. Yeah, it was. And But I thought it was a very good point. It's interesting that Eddard, and, and you know, there's talks about all the marriages that Eddard's dad arranged, you know, with with Eddard and, and uh, with, with, um, with Catelyn and everything and all the stuff that he did there, uh, Brandon and everything. But... Here's Eddard, and he hadn't done any of that. So it's kind of off topic here, but I that just helped me remember that. That's um, it's interesting. Yeah, good to know. At least they were looking, right? You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, it did sound like it was kind of Rickard's idea. Mm, yeah, the way I read it, but right. Uh, on that note, we find out that the just to drive home the point, right? Car Starks are baddies. Yeah, point uh, your summary, a, so I don't know that there's much more to be said. But in a gray in a gray world of bad versus good, uh, they're certainly in it for themselves, at least. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, we kind of see it almost as two sided: Stannis versus Roose Bolton. But there's really three sides. Yeah. Right. In, or in, like I mean, 50. this conflict I mean, in the north. Right. Yeah. yeah. You're right, but it's kind of if we were to distill it down, it's Roose Bolton versus Stannis, and then you've got the North kind of permeating all of it. Yeah. And them just kind of wanting to go back to the way things were preferably mm-hmm. without Roos. Many of them, yeah. many of them think. Uh, we want to touch on Celise real quick. Sure. Boy, she is, uh, she's really something. She is like that annoying customer that demands to speak with your manager before you even get a chance to help her. <laughs> Oh man, just like so presumptive, the way she like refers to Eastwatch. <laughs> a 
on Critical Role recently, like, one of the villages they're in just gets, like, mostly burned to the ground. Hmm. And one of the players, really uncharacteristic for them, because they usually think about things like this, but really uncharacteristic, he's, like, going around asking people if they have any extra healing potions. Meanwhile, they're all dealing with their own dead and their own people that are injured. He's, like, asking them to donate healing Mm. potions to their cause Mm -hmm. and Solis is like complaining about how niggardly uh you know cotter pike was with the stuff and it's like don't you see don't do you know why you're up here you know why you came up here right there's like (laughs) others and things Mm. and a war going on and they need the food that you're asking for and like being a bitch about like Tact. Know, know the situation. No tact. And she's potentially going to be the queen of the seven kingdoms. Potentially. Yeah. We'll see. Good luck. Can't be worse than Cersei. <laughs> nope. I guess if you got to choose one. <laughs> yeah. I'll go for the one who wants to see my manager. <laughs> uh, okay. Are we good there? Can we move on. Yeah, um, yeah I'll, I'll point out how funny it was that John considers sending Arya to Bravos, but Arya would need yes. someone to protect her. She was only a child. Yes. That's hilarious. <laughs> She's actually doing just fine. <laughs> and in Bravos. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, yeah, that's all. That's all. All right, move on to this. Uh, we got one more question from B Word here. Yes, we do. If you guys had to rename your kids using names from A Song of Ice and Fire, what would you choose? You want to go first on this one? Tuffy. Uh, Sure. Yes, I will. So the girl name was easy. I've always loved the name Jane. Mm. Um, And I even like how they spell it in A Song of Ice and Fire. There's a lot of those in here. Yeah, there's lots of Janes. Um, And we always said uh, that if we had another daughter, I'd love to to name her Jane. Mm. But um, so... Jane is the easy one. Uh, second place for a girl name is Ariane. I think it's a pretty name. <clears throat> um, but I have one girl, so I would rename her Jane. I have two boys, and I like, I love the name Barrick. It's a powerful sounding name. So I'd get a, a little Barrick, and uh, <laughs> I don't necessarily love the character, but I think the name's another kind of strong sounding name Mace. Mace is in Mace Tyrell. It's, so, it's a weapon, so yeah, it does sound yeah. strong. We'd have Barrick, Mace, and Jane would be my kids. Lovely. Well, my task is a little easier. I only have the two, both boys. Um, and I I, I really like the word Rickon. Hey, that is a good one. Uh, so I'd probably go with Rickon. Uh-huh. And... Um, maybe Robert Glover. I like the two R's there. Yeah, Rickon and Robert. Yeah, yeah. Ricky and Robbie. Yeah, <laughs> I like it. Ricky Bobby. Yeah. Hey, hey, Rick, Ricky Bobby. <laughs> Terrible film. Okay, uh. there you go. I like it. All right, sir. Should we move on to Davos After Dark? Let's do, but we got to thank our Patreon supporters first. Let's do that. We do. Yep. So let's see here. Thank you, all of our Patreon supporters. Um, 
Uh, yeah, you start us off because you're good at reading the first one. <laughs> oh yeah. For those that don't know, this is a reference to Super Troopers. Uh, yeah. the, the the name in this first one. For our dirty cab driver level, Josh C, Warden of the Reach, around Lord of Littering and Littering and Littering and Smoking the Others. Oh yeah, Jacob M. Lady Fat Ass Red. Jeff H. Archmaster June, healer of the lesser poxes. Oh, that reminds me of something. We should bring up the bizarre thing. Um, oh, yeah. Jeremy L. <laughs> Jamie K. Donneris. Sarah from Texas. Cinder at the Citadel. Calling you. Uh, Sarah Stormthea Snow, the Bastard Storm. Austin C. Heather H. B Word, our queen beyond the wall. And Blood Rainer. Blood Reiner. Excuse me. <laughs> All right. I didn't know we were German here. <laughs> he is. <laughs> uh, Misa, the queen of gifts and beauty at our Team John level. Thank you, Misa, for all your support. Thank and you. all of our Dirty Cab Driver supporters. Yep, And, and everyone got... out there that supports us in other ways, too. Yeah, we've got tons of support. And some people have even asked that we don't say their names on the podcast. So just Indeed. kind of a blanket thank you very much, uh, everyone, for the support, no matter what level or in what form it takes we appreciate you guys uh, keeping us going indeed well said uh let's see so um also we'll just say it uh, saying june's name made me think of it we got oh my god more feedback, more feedback. <laughs> on one topic than i can ever remember getting on one topic we yeah. got about um, are bringing up of Bizor. Am I saying it right now? Bizor. Well, we got different feedback. It's hard to say. The different first feedback we got was Bezoir. Uh huh. And then we got uh, Bizor, I think. Right. Bizor. It sounds like most people are saying it's Bizor, but I. We still I, don't I, know. Think, <laughs> I think it was Archmaster June that, that went with Bezoir, and I'm going to go with that one. Sounds Both great. Both because it's fun and because. She is a healer of lesser She's boxes. A healer so of lesser boxes. Yep. Uh, so yeah, I was tremendously humiliated because it's in Harry Potter apparently, and twelve people pointed that out to us. And I've read the <laughs> Harry Potter books twice, and somehow missed it. So terrible. Literally like twelve. I mean, a lot of people came through on this one for That's us. <laughs> so if you guys could just answer some of these other questions we're asking, like about the capture of Edmure Tully. That'd be that'd be great. But Harry Potter scad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Goodness gracious! No, we love you guys. I don't mean to demean your well-meaning and pointing it out to us. Uh, it was it was just funny how much feedback we got on something we literally just thought would be a passing thing. So yes, <laughs> pretty funny. All right. Well, let's move into Davos After Dark. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Um, as we mentioned at the top of the podcast, now's where we enter into the realm of book spoilers. Uh, for those just joining us for the first time on this episode, we call it Davos After Dark. We talk about everything. Even in the last episode, we went into uh, some of the spoiler chapters for Winds of Winter. Um, don't worry, we'll warn you on this Davos After Dark section if we go into any of that. But uh, anyways... Turn us off now if you don't want to get spoiled on future happenings, because this is Davos After Dark. Davos After Dark. Okay. Um, let's jump back to the beginning, Scad, and talk Lady Stoneheart. Mm-hmm. Scad and I are getting to the point where we come up with the same Davos After Dark topics. <laughs> um, 
as we write notes to each other. And, uh, of course, Stoneheart came up um, along Just with a quick, talking about Just a quick interjection. Mm-hmm. Uh, since, since Donner's asked earlier, we don't share notes about the general chapter discussions that we have. We like to keep that loose and light and to surprise each other mm-hmm. to get original thoughts. But we do, for the Davos After Dark stuff, send notes back and forth. So it's kind of, we do some of each, right? That's a good Sorry. point. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, a way to kind of allow each other to kind of prepare, prepare. Yeah, yeah. thoughts and, and think For a little bit more critically like about some of these things. So, Right. Um, and both of us brought up Lady Stoneheart. So, Sked, where do you feel like this whole Stoneheart arc is going? I mean, uh, what will her, what will, as you asked, what will her impact be? Her impact. I mean, she's seeking, she's seeking revenge. I feel like there's not much more to it than that. Mm-hmm. I don't know if like, if she gets Jamie's head on a stick, will she be like, all right, that's it. I'm going to give the gift of life to somebody else. I'm done. Mm-hmm. Or whether she's just going to go on all out rampage to kill or offend or what have you. Anyone that, that did harm to Rob or, you know, betrayed him. Um, But I, I, yeah, I mean, I get the feeling like she got brought to life. She wasn't expecting it. She was given this uh, ragtag group of people and said, all right, let's see what we can, let's see what havoc we can throw out there. And it feels that simple to me. Yeah. That quote by Gurm was very telling about how all that he had, all that Beric had left was his mission, right? Mm -hmm. And that's my worry with, is he giving us a little hint into Catelyn that, you know, nothing is going to change her from her course is that she's just going to be vengeful forever. Yeah. And, but you have to wonder like what would happen if suddenly she found out Bran and Rickon were alive, you know, she still thinks they're dead. Um, what would happen if she met up with Arya again? Would anything change or is she that far gone? We know Beric forgot about his family, his woman, the woman he's supposed to marry. Would Cat forget about that too? Yeah. Yeah, you know, and this now dovetails into the fire zombie discussion a little bit. Which Do you I mind if I to. go there? Yep, we want to. I want to combine those two, so go for it. So I don't have the quote in front of me, but semi recently George compared the uh, zombie cat and and Barrick. Would you like me to read it? Fire zombies. Yeah, let me finish real quick, and then just sure. you can yep. read directly. As fire zombies, in contrast to the whites being the ice zombies. Not in contrast to the others, if I remember correctly, but in contrast to the whites. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you got that quote, yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah, he says, so he's talking about Beric Dondarrion, um, who was, Gurm admits that Beric is set up as foreshadowing, foreshadowing to all of this. He talks about every time he's a little less Beric, his memories are fading, he's got all these scars, becoming more and more physically hideous, because he's not a living human being anymore. His heart isn't beating. His blood isn't flowing in his veins. He's a white, but a white animated by fire instead of by ice. And then he says, now we're getting back to the whole fire and ice thing. So I don't like it. Um, I think I said this when this quote came out, I didn't like it. Hmm. Because these fire white, and you know, maybe I just need to deal with the fact that it's not you know, it's not X equals X. They're not exactly the same, right. but they seem way... I know they're just kind of... Maybe they're just aware of their mission or that's the thing that drives them, 
But Beric had philosophical discussions mm-hmm. with Arya and with others. The Whites, they are aware of things. They knew where J.R. Mormont lived. They knew his, where his quarters were. They're aware of things. They were driven by a mission. Right. And, and they remembered or retained information from their previous life. So uh-huh. they're not just dumb walking popsicles. Yep. But I don't feel like they're in any way as capable as the Fire Whites. And so I'm looking... I'm looking for more information about Ice Whites in the upcoming books to try to dispel my my reaction about them not being equal players. Right. You know, they should be the pawns of the chess game on both sides. And instead, I feel like we're given pawns on the white side and, you know, rooks or something on the <laughs> fire side. And maybe there's a reason for it, but... Maybe. Yeah, your point is well taken. Um, and you have to wonder, are there other ways to yeah. bring back whites is it just fire and ice you know right I... is there a way to bring back a queen like the night fort or uh-huh well and i thought of uh you know just getting back to sciencey ways kyburn with yeah. gregor clegane slash robert strong yeah. you know there's this whole undead element to germ's world that he seems like he's just scratching the surface on yeah Anyways, I don't know that yep. I have much more on that. No, I don't. I don't think I have much, much either. I'm excited, God, Matt. I'm just so excited for these books. I, I was just thinking today, like, you know, like when it comes out, like, what will we do? You know, because <laughs> I'm gonna probably read the thing in like a week. Oh yeah, I, and then like, I feel like I'm just gonna want to talk with you for like hours. You know, mm. like not not in any sort of format like this. Even though I know our format is loose, but not in any sort of format, just like just to talk and just to like nerd out, you know, and uh, and God, if I don't miss Brooke, I'd love to talk to her too, you know, I think, I think we will make that happen. Um, Yeah, I definitely see the podcast taking a break in order to read. Yeah, yeah. Go from there. Yeah. Just so excited. I want more on these friggin zombies, fire or ice or whatever. There's so much to wrap up in these last two books. Oh, it's a whole other discussion. <laughs> uh, okay, let's let's move over to the Riverlands, and I think all of this might jumble together as well. So, <laughs> want to talk yeah. about where in the world is Brendan Blackfish Tolly? Uh, wow. I also want to talk about the infamous Jane's hips discrepancy, yeah. and uh, maybe get into some. Uh, Reynold Westerling alive stuff too. Um, yeah, we got lots we could talk about there. <laughs> There's a lot there. Oh, yeah. Um, let's talk about Jane first. Okay. So the theory, well, a theory has been put forth that uh, the Jane that we saw in this Jamie chapter that we discussed on the episode is not actually Jane Westerling. Um, the main piece of evidence given is that uh, her hips in particular are described differently by Jamie than they are described by Catelyn um, in the last book. Uh, Jamie describes her as like a little skinny thing with skinny little hips, and Catelyn describes her as good childbearing hips. Right? Yep. Um, yeah, and so go ahead. That has led some people to believe that that uh, that's not really Jane Westerling that we're seeing there. It's someone yeah. else. 
and the smaller, and, and maybe leading to the someone else, the smaller piece of evidence, which I kind of trolled a little bit in my summary, hmm. um, I, I said not pictured in this, not seen in this picture, uh-huh. is that people think that maybe it's her younger sister pretending yeah. to be her, Elena um, and that Jane is in fact not there, mm-hmm. um, because we don't, that other piece of evidence is we never see the sister. Now, maybe we wouldn't. We don't see Rolf either, or, you know, a million other people that, you know, that are there, right? Mm-hmm. But um, that's the other little piece. Now, do you want to go into the George thing, or do you want me to do it? Go ahead. I've talked enough. <laughs> I think we both have talked plenty. It's two, through almost three hours here. Uh, but George has dismissed this. He called it a mistake, uh, said he didn't intend uh, for that to be the case. Um said that it didn't say specifically that it is Jane, but said basically that it is uh, it was a mistake. So could he be misleading us? Yeah, he could be, but... Yeah, the mistake being that he just forgot the detail, right? Right. Now, one thing that someone pointed out today that I was reading is that, um, and maybe let me know if you've got more, but that that quote didn't come directly from George, but from Linda of Elio and Linda fame, that she's the one that said it was the mistake and it didn't come directly from him. Do you Mm. know any differently? No, I didn't remember that being the case. Um, I I wouldn't, I I, I wouldn't strongly deny that that was true, but I thought it was, I thought it was something that George dismissed and maybe that Linda translated from him or. Right. Yeah. The quote is from her. Uh, and I've got that here, but she says, I'm pretty sure it was just a mistake. And, oh, here's where it is, where you're saying that attributed to George. George has apparently told people that it's a mistake, but people want to believe this very complex theory of theirs. <laughs> right. As as we saw, can lead to disaster with The Last Jedi and, and people's opinions on that. <laughs> if you're more into believing your own uh, concocted fantasies of where things are going to go than what the author intends, then... You got some other weird stuff going on, mm-hmm. um, but uh, you know, I, to me, it's more of a it's more of a writing, narrative, literary thing. Something feels off to Jane to me. Yes, um, this girl, and it could just be due to grief, uh, but this girl feels uh, passive. She feels less engaged uh, and less fighty and demanding. Remember that Jane rode off to chase Rob down two hours into his departure to River Run. Um, she's a willful child. She takes things into her own hands, including his wiener uh, when he was injured at her castle. Um, she's not she's not one to sit by while Jamie and, and her mother are talking about her. And, and this person kind of does, right? And a little bit, yeah. Uh, so it's more it's more that to me than um you know than maybe the rest of it she's but... still a little bit willful right she almost is the yeah that her mom almost hits her and jamie's like yep. nope you're not gonna do that but she, she does feel back. she does feel like she's been beaten down a bit yeah, yeah. um yep uh, you know someone pointed out that if uh, jamie makes particular mention of her clothes being kind of torn and in tatters and stuff like that yep. and jamie attributes attributes it to mourning but with them being torn it might fit a little more loosely to perhaps hide a pregnancy um mm. 
I mean, this could have, this could be huge to the story if Jane is pregnant, right? Or missing. <clears throat> yeah. Um, yeah, how, how long has it been since the Red Wedding? Do you know that? Um, how long has she been mourning is what I'm getting at. Less than a year. Still. Less than a year, we know that because Rosalind is still pregnant, although we don't know how far along. Right. Uh, yeah, I guess we I, don't know. I mean, it's probably been like three or four months. I'd Certainly say less still than within the Within the mourning period. Yeah. Okay. I think it's, well, yeah, yeah, probably four or five months, three to five months. But, uh, you know, it's interesting to consider that if Jane is pregnant, um, a whole bunch of stuff could happen. Yeah. And if that's not Jane, did Jane escape with Blackfish? You know, where has he gone? Is this a segue into chatting about him? Uh, sure. You can segue into talking about him. Where could he be? You mentioned that you had some ideas. I'd love to hear them. Well, they're they're poorly formed. Um, so, so first of all, I guess I'd say uh, Radio Westeros has an awesome episode on the Brotherhood Without Banners mm-hmm. way back from like... I think in 2014 or something. I mean, a while ago. Um, it's like their eighth episode, maybe. Um, look it up, Brother Without Banners episode. Uh, and they go into a lot of this stuff. And so very little of what I'm talking about is original, except for this part. And I, I couldn't find this anywhere else. Uh, I didn't look really hard, but I looked a little. Mm. Um, I kind of think he swam upstream. Okay. The t- so so Jamie's looking downstream. He thinks he escaped into the Red Fork. Um, they, but but Edmure says what he did was open the water gate. Mm-hmm. The water gate is entered by the Tumblestone, uh, which is the northern North, river that makes yeah. up uh, you know that. And and if it enter if the Tumblestone enters the water gate, I don't know exactly how it leaves, but that implies that. To leave the castle, he'd have to go upstream, up the tumblestone, mm-hmm. right? If, if in, unless they're being a little liberal with the use of enters, um, and they meant exits or something. But, <laughs> um, so so I think he maybe went upstream, which would put him in a better position to help spring a trap on this party of Lannisters escorting. Um, escorting Edmure and and the Westerlings. Uh, it puts him, you know, west, northwest of the castle rather than probably northeast of it, right? Um, now, what does that do for him? I don't know. Uh, I have I have some issues with a lot of a lot of the kind of ideas. Now, it's been said. Um, I think George flat out stated that Jane would appear in the pro in the prologue of Dance with of. Uh, Wins a winner. Wins a, wins a winner. Um, but it's four hundred men. They depart a day before the garrison at River Run gets released, so they got a day head start. Mm-hmm. The Brotherhood without banners, for as available as they may be, a their numbers really seem to have dwindled. B they've kind of split in half. It sounds like. Um, and again, Radio Westeros covers a lot of this. Um, but there's the Stoneheart group, there's uh, another group of people that seem to have split off. 
there are there's Ned, the uh, heir to Starfall, and Angie that are not with Cat anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's maybe a couple different groups, but I kind of always got the feeling they were in the Riverlands more to you know to, to the to the east of River Run, and these guys are definitively going west. Right. So like. Even for the court, uh, the coordination, like like a big deal is made of like, well, there are people in the camp to communicate and do all these things, but it happens real fast. Jamie makes the deal with Edmure. He goes in like the next day, right, after considering it, and releases the Blackfish that night. The very next day, they send Edmure and the others uh, to the Westerlands. There's not a lot of room for coordination. It's not like, you know, the singer could have like, been passing a bunch of messages to the Brotherhood Without Banners or, you know, other other lords and had a bunch of time for them to gather their forces and get in a surprise position for this party. It's... Now, George has played it fast and loose with, with the timing sometimes, but this is moving fast. Yeah, you can't just send a text message. Right. And and, and, and Jamie gets it done quick. It's the... I may, I may be wrong about how fast Edmure accepts the deal. Maybe he sleeps on that for a few days, giving... Uh, Thomas Evans more time to to get the message out, but you get the sense he had a timetable on that decision, and and as soon as they get in the castle, it's one day, and then the next morning they're gone. That's certainly what kind of what we're kind of led to believe, but, and, and so that there, fits with Jamie's kind of character right now. He's just right. wants to get things done, get it done, get home, yeah. and so I. I'm not saying that the theories are wrong about this ambush, but mm. it certainly feels fast. I hear you. Right? I hear you. Um, you know, the the, the the people that leave the... If, if you're counting on the Brotherhood Without Banners, it feels like they're in the wrong place. If you're counting on the garrison from Riverrun, they're unarmed. Jamie took their weapons. They would have to meet with other wolfish river lords, which, uh, again, Radio Westers covers this. This is not me. Um, they would have to meet with them and get weapons and stuff. Um and that would take time, right? And then they'd have to find the blackfish and meet somewhere, get to this, you know, location somewhere around, um, you know, around the the entrance to the Westerlands to set up this ambush. I don't know, man. It's it's asking a lot. Yeah. To me, maybe uh, maybe Brendan is is rounding up some river lords who are willing to take a chance. Right, but again, fast. He has one day to round them up yep. and then get ahead of them. Yep. Right. So it would have to be quick. Yeah. Um that's that's a good point. But, so you think he's uh potentially cruising around the Riverlands still? Well, uh, as of when? As yeah. of the beginning of Winds of Winter? Yeah, I think so. I don't know yeah. where else he could be. Right. I think it's an interesting idea. I like the idea of him um swimming upstream because everyone else would expect him to go the opposite direction yeah i mean it's thin Uh, all i have is that it'd be misdirection and intelligent from him and b edmure makes a little statement about how strong a swimmer he is um which you don't need to be a strong swimmer to go downstream which that would be a little mistake from edmure like Mm -hmm. indicating that Mm -hmm. um and then uh, and then the, the bit about the Watergate and how it comes, the tumblestone comes into it, right? Yeah. Which implies that you'd have to go up. Yeah, yeah. Um, my ideas were not 
well thought out. I was just thinking of options of places he could go. Uh, one option is the Vale, um, potentially maybe to ally himself with Bronzion Royce or something, who, of course, he's got relations with, uh, having been in the Vale for a long, long, long time as of Game of Thrones. Um, he's got lots of buddies there and could potentially have some sway and influence. Uh, another idea is going to Greywater Watch. He knows that uh, Mage Mormont and Galbert Glover went there with Rob's will and such, and so he could be going to rendezvous with them. Um, he could be trying to go find Catelyn if he's heard that she's still alive. Let's see what's up with her. And then finally, this is where the Jane stuff kind of crosses. If Jane is pregnant and Blackfish knows about it, he could potentially be carrying that news to the north. You know, could maybe be. maybe going to uh, Wyman Manderley or something to to or at least to the Manderleys in White Harbor to carry that news that, um, that that's going around. You know, he in the last Jamie chapter, they make a point to show that the Stark flag still flies the stark sigil still flies over river run um potentially if and he's very stubborn about keeping it there and if he yep. knows there is a stark air in river run maybe that's why he was so stubborn about keeping that flag raised uh but again that's very tenuous and i don't know that i feel one way or the other about that but all potential ideas of where she could where he could be yeah for sure Okay, we good there? Uh, yeah. Did we want to talk about the two Tully fellows headed to the wall? The what? The what? The what? Headed to the wall. Oh yeah, the two boys. Yeah, we got uh, boys is generous. <laughs> they're old guys, Robin Riger and uh, Desmond Grell. That them. Mm-hmm. You think they make it? <sighs> good question. They were. Uh... So, of course, we don't hear from them again in the published books. Uh, the, the guy who they were supposed to, who was supposed to escort them, Raph the Sweetling, we do see later, spoilers for Winds of Winter, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, at Maidenpool. Now, Jamie did command Raph to take them. Well, we don't see Raph at Maidenpool. We see him across the Narrow Sea, right? But Raph was told to escort them to Maidenpool to then be taken up north to the wall. Um, Raph is still alive as of the beginning of Arya's Winds of Winter chapter, um, but that's all we really know, right? Yeah. It just makes me wonder whether he just... I don't know. We know what kind of guy Raph is. Yeah, slit their throats... Took their stuff and uh, made his way across the sea. Now, he was with somebody. Uh, I can't remember that Winds of Winter chapter now, uh, who he was with. He wasn't alone, though. He was with a group, right? Mm -hmm. And he was on assignment. He was yeah. working. So yeah. he'd obviously made it to Maidenpool. And... Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I'm excited. If they do make it, I'm excited for John. Two men that uh, have experience and can maybe help lighten his load a little bit. Mm -hmm. For sure. Okay, um, do you want to talk about Reynold Westerling? Uh, I think we, I think we just point them to Lady Gwyn's write-up and, and be done with it. Um, it's, a, I, I reread it today, or mm -hmm. yesterday. Um, 
And it's a good one. Uh, she backs it up well, and um, I'm not sure if I believe it, but uh, it's fun. And even she prefaces the whole yeah. <laughs> the whole theory with this is major tinfoil. Yeah. Uh, but as far as tinfoil goes, go LG. Um, yeah. She certainly knows how to back her stuff up. Um, but the uh, the the title of the theory Scott's referring to Scott's referring to is Grey Wind and Reynold Westerling Alive. So Google that sucker. It's on uh, LG's um, on her website, and I believe it's brought up in. Is it that Brotherhood with Out Banners episode? It's in one of the. They bring it up and discuss it in one of Radio Westeros's episodes. I don't but... think it was that one because I listened to that one this okay. week and I did not. I don't remember hearing it. Uh-huh. Um, I'll just say one thing about it real quick. Um, one of the most compelling things uh, that's said is the, the phrase "make a note that they didn't find his body," mm-hmm. and they cover this up by saying, "Well, geez, man, what do you expect? They're all in the river. They're bloated up. We can't recognize these people." But they also admitted that they know what his surcoat looks like. Yeah. And so if they pulled the body from the water, they should have recognized it. And he was the only Westerling that went. Meaning that he would be the only one bearing the Westerling sigil, the seashells. So, So, you know, they either didn't look or didn't find it or, you know, it's not there. Mm -hmm. And And as the title... And as the it's title may suggest, and I think we've brought it up in a past episode, she also spends a good portion of that essay um, positing that Grey Wind might also be alive, and that who knows if the the two are together. As yeah, more more of it. Summary that yeah, more Westerling, of it than she spends on Reynold. Yeah, sure. That Reynold Westerling made a particular point to try to save Grey Wind uh, at risk to his own life. So maybe they're together somewhere. It's fascinating. Maybe, to get, maybe together they can get somewhere. Maybe. Any place is better. Yep, and it wouldn't be bad having a dire wolf uh, as your traveling companion. Um, okay, do we care about enough about this uh, Arain water stuff to talk about it before we end? <laughs> um, uh, I, I, I did I, I did a little bit of number crunching. Um but no, not nothing, nothing too, mm-hmm. nothing too awesome. Just I guess we'll just say, just generically, if Arain Waters and those ships join Stannis, which we don't know if they are, mm-hmm. uh, it could be pirating or doing something else. But if they do, it's a you know Stannis's army is slowly getting stronger, and if he can pull out of this, pull out a victory here in the north, his army might double and add the Dromans and stuff, and you know the Dragonstone contingent if it's still hanging on which we posited in the last episode maybe there's some shady shit going on with loris and and the storming of dragonstone um you know and and if if the reach leaves the lannisters due to all this shit cersei's pulling with marjorie uh you know all of a sudden they're in a pretty good spot and stannis just by grinding his teeth and kind of hanging on by his you know by his nails he's you know he's all of a sudden not not looking too bad yeah oh good point also remembering that uh wyman manderley is secretly building ships too in white harbor is Um, yep so if he does end up supporting stannis add those to the 10 or 11 dromans that arane waters would have yeah i think wyman has 50 so 
all of a sudden you got a great fleet there to rival the, of course, the Red Wine fleet. Right. Um, Patch Face said something interesting. <laughs> he said, he uh, I like the idea, first of all, of our rainwaters allying with Stannis. I think there's the connection there with Stannis mm-hmm. having, you know, um, uh, been lord at Dragonstone and Aurain coming from Driftmark, the Valerions. Yes. Uh, he's a bastard of the Valerion family, which yes. there's a connection there. So Patchface said, we will march into the sea and out again. He says this in John's chapter. Uh, Under the waves we will ride. Seahorses and mermaids will blow seashells to announce our coming. This could be nothing. Seahorses, though, is the sigil of House Valerion. Oh, I didn't remember that. Mermaids, more, well, more specifically mermen, is the sigil of the Manderlees. Manderlees, yep. Seashells is a little more tenuous, but it is, as I just said, the sigil of House Westerling. <laughs> uh, so if you've got seahorses and mermaids together, uh, you know, waters hooking up with Manderley and their fleets combining, and then seashells could be a couple things. It could be Reynold Westerling being alive and going with Grey Wind up north and having that dire wolf there to kind of add further legitimacy to the Stark and northern you know, forces that could be something. Or this brings back Jane into everything. If Jane is pregnant, she's a Westerling. That comes back north. All of a sudden you've got a Stark heir, Rob Stark's potential son up in the north. That could What was the what was the language? They'll come together and what the seashell? What is it? It says under the waves we will ride seahorses and mermaids. Or, or excuse me, let me reread that. Under the waves we will ride seahorses, and mermaids will blow seashells to announce our coming. Oh, oh, oh. So the the language and the way it's all written together is a little bit tricky, but I just thought it interesting, interesting those different sigils with yeah, everything we've very, talked about. Could very, be very. Nothing. Could be nothing. No, I like it, though, like blowing the seashells as a, as a, a portent of something coming. Blowing the seashell could be like, announcing something like announcing mm-hmm. we have the air or yeah it's interesting fascinating yeah uh let's see i think i think that's that's about it we haven't really talked about danny but i don't know that there's anything i really care to talk about no me neither with there so um should we close out let's close it out man i'm exhausted are you exhausted i'm ready for bed <laughs> Okay, well, thanks everyone for joining us. Uh, my sign-off goes back to the, the the lack of food in Westeros, and Jamie wonders how Tywin would have reacted to this food shortage and everything. And uh, I was reminded of a lyric from one of my favorite hip-hop groups, Jurassic 5, and in one of their songs they say, something doesn't mean, I'm going to change the vernacular a little bit, something doesn't mean anything. If your people are wanting, he says it more rappy. Something don't mean nothing if your people truly wanting. Uh, of course, meaning that even if you're something big and important, it doesn't mean anything if the people that you have, kind of uh, that you're responsible for, have nothing. Right? I think about that in terms of my family. I can be, you know, I could hit it big with my music or with this podcast or something, be this big important person. But if my family isn't getting the attention they deserve from me, then I'm really nothing. So uh, something don't mean nothing if your people truly want. That's what I'm signing off with. Nice. 
I'm going to go with uh, what I think is uh, perhaps the single sentence that summarizes this entire series so far, uh, maybe better than any. It's from Thoros in Brienne 8. Mm. Mm. War makes monsters of us all. Does it ever. Does it ever. Good night, my friends. Good night. Thanks, Matt. Yep, see ya. Good night, Kalisar. You went from nothing to something, but something means nothing if your people still want it. And you got money and giving them nothing. Awesome in front of you. Oh, and then, a song of madness. Gotta love it. Yeah, yeah. People take it so seriously. It's awesome. I love yeah. it. Yeah, it's a. It's like maybe the best, it's maybe a better idea than the podcast that we do. <laughs> <laughs> it's like maybe the best idea we had. I didn't, um... I changed the name of the episode title at the top, but not in your oh. actual Oh, notes. what is it? Only Hope. Only Hope. What is that referring I to? I just changed it. Uh, well, we got, so Jamie sees Brienne as her only hope. Uh, Cersei uh, sees Jamie as her only hope. And then Alice Karstark at the end of her chapter actually yes. says to John, you're my only hope. So I like that. Of course, you'll drop an Obi-Wan reference in there, I'm sure. Why not? Yeah. Did I ever tell you my my Smashing Pumpkins concert story? No. Uh, do we want we're we're in deep already. Do we want to tell it? I'm open to it if you want. I mean, maybe we cut it. Maybe we see how terrible it is and then you can cut it. Okay. So so freshman year in college, I lived on a floor with uh, a guy who, my dick roommate, Steve, he listens sometimes if he's out there. My dick roommate, Steve, nicknamed him Hollywood because he was from L.A. That was all it took. He was from L.A., mm-hmm. and so we just started calling him Hollywood. Hollywood was a huge Kiss fan. Huge. Like, did the had seen them several times, did the dress-up, always dressed up as Peter Chris. Big fan. Uh... And they were going to do a concert with Smashing Pumpkins in L.A. Uh, right around Halloween. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was just a kid looking for adventure. Uh, I'm not a huge Kiss fan, although I enjoy their music. But, you know, the the Kiss shows are legendarily entertaining. So I'm like, you know what? I like rock. Right. I like Kiss fine. It's a spectacle. Let's mm-hmm. go. I'm a kid. Let's do it. Uh, my buddy Pete... I think I've called him Uncle Carl on this cast before. He, uh, mm-hmm. he, and his girlfriend Patricia were well, mainly his girlfriend Patricia were hugely into Smashing Pumpkins, and so they hitched along to go because Smashing Pumpkins was opening. So we're in L.A. For those that maybe don't know, L.A. is perhaps world renowned for awful traffic. Mm-hmm. Um. We're stopped at Hollywood's house because, you know, he's got to get ready. He's got to get his duds on, right? He takes, like, three hours, him and his girlfriend getting ready for this Kiss show. Mm. We get on the road, and we arrive in time for one Smashing Pumpkins song. (laughs) And Pete and Patricia are livid at him. And he's just like, I don't care. I don't care. And then the guy just stands there like he's, you know, been talking about this concert for weeks and the, and kiss plays and he just stands there like a stone watching the whole thing. No emotion, 
no nothing just stands there almost like he's not even having any fun pete and patricia slumped in their chairs just like so annoyed uh that that's that is (laughs) and you just like yeah i i honestly it felt like i had the best time of any of them right and i had the least waving your shirt around and i had the least like the least involved right uh but yeah i mean I, i i fell in love with kisses uh at least their showmanship. Um, mm-hmm. They were awesome. You know, they did the whole yeah, something special guitar man. catching fire and the you know the blood mm-hmm. and uh, it was it was awesome. Oh, those nights in Satan's service, I tell you. <laughs> Nothing satanic about those guys, but they certainly play it up. There really isn't. Yeah, it really isn't. It's great. Wow. I would be a little upset too if I only got to see one Smashing Pumpkin song. I think it was one. I mean, they they were so angry. <laughs> <laughs> ah, Ceslavier. Anyways, hey Blood Riders, let's give credit where credit's due as far as the music for this episode. We had two songs. The first was an old classic, "Here's to the Night" by a great alternative rock band, Eve Six, off their album Horror Scope. I really, really liked that band back in high school, and I'll be honest, I still like them today. The other song we had was uh, Jurassic Fives, If You Only Knew, off of their 2002 album Power in Numbers. Guys, if you like hip-hop, you gotta like Jurassic Five. Great, 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 great stuff. Uh, also great was just being able to chat with Scat on this episode. Had a great time. Hopefully you guys liked it as well. So we'll catch you on the next one. Until then, stay savage, Blood Riders. Take care. Mm-hmm.